look, it'd be in yeah. Ultimate Warrior's yeah. corner today. Yeah. No yeah. way he's going to be on the side of Match Man Randy Savage. Look at Then there's some royal, I put in quotes, royal music and British kids debating what will happen in the WWE title match. Then some stuff about the British Bulldog and Bret Hart and the classic, the British Bulldog is going to win whether he wants to or nah, kid. We all, uh, we've all seen that clip, I'm sure, before. Matt, you're shaking your head as if you don't even remember what, you, what I'm talking about. I never saw it until this. This oh is really God. famous. This, it's a girl, actually. And I it's a girl. Wow. Actually, oh, it's a girl. Uh, now, I was, believe it or not, there's a bit, not the way where this young lady spoke, the bit where it's going along the side of the thing. I was, the camera stopped on me and I spoke to the camera. Now, no one's been more gutted in life when on the Monday night because I think we got the pay-per-view before then Bank Holiday Monday I watched it and I wasn't on it now I th- I've got a theory about this I had particularly bad teeth as a 10 year old I was a very ugly child and I think my <laughs> face was just too bad for a US audience basically with the whole stereotype about bad British teeth I didn't have a brace till I was 16 mum what were you doing but yeah so I think and I was so gutted and I think I said something about Macho Man Randy Savage winning and that was it basically and I didn't they didn't, they didn't pick me so much like some of my stories earlier in the show when it ended out, I was edited out of this night as well. So <laughs> they would have wanted to have shown you to just to, to prove this is such a British show. Hey, look, I know people with bad teeth. <laughs> and you're it sticking out like that. Yeah, yeah. To think they they obviously thought you were hideous because they picked the <laughs> British Bulldog is going to win whether he wants to or not over that. So yeah, I know. stupid <laughs> phrase. It's lived with me for 30 years. I've never. I've paid a lot of therapy costs thinking about that. Actually, yeah. <laughs> the closest I've ever come to that is when we were at WrestleMania 26. We went to the Hall of Fame induction. It was in the afternoon, strangely, uh, that year. Uh, it wasn't a particularly prestigious class. It was headlined by Ted DiBiase, and the other uh, inductees were less than exciting. And me, old man Tom, all went in our suits to the Hall of Fame. Mm. But it was fucking boiling because it was Phoenix. Phoenix on it, yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely sweltering. And there was a local news team that came along the line and they actually stopped to us because we were like, we we had our suits on. So obviously we were able to do our, yeah, we've come all the way from the UK. And uh, then they went, I think the 
person said, oh, you, you know that wrestling's fake, don't you? He's like, what? We were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we're really playing along. You know, we didn't want to we didn't want to ruin oh. it for any of the kids watching. I just thought that was not, I thought that was bang out of order. Were they really still asking that? I know, it's so shameful. Madness, isn't it? Welcome once again to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and today we mark the 30th anniversary of what is arguably the most important event in British wrestling history, SummerSlam 1992. Yes indeed, with just a week ago until WWE's clash at the castle, it felt doubly pertinent to look back at an event that for some cemented their wrestling fandom. And we have one of those very people with us today as giving us an in-person perspective on the show, we have the one and only Stephen Coriander. Stephen, how are you doing? (laughs) Yes, amazing. Uh, really pleased to be here. This is the most, no disrespect to any of my guest hosts, yourself included, Ben. Uh, <laughs> this is the, one of the most up for a podcast I've been for some time. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this. And also, I'm really looking forward to hearing you, Matt, talk about this show as well. So you destroy my childhood and break my heart all in one go. <laughs> amazing stuff. Now, so you notice I call you Stephen Coriander. It's sticking. You're even mm. Stephen Coriander in my WhatsApp. That's amazing. Now- your name pretty much entirely it's when i put uh, that name on my own podcast handle that you know that you it's stuck forever basically so yeah that's good that's what we're hoping for that's what we're hoping for <laughs> and uh, Stephen, since you've last been on as well you've had some changes go on on what was mid-south moments yes. uh, i thought you might want to talk about them and also talk about obviously your new show well thank you i'm not prepared for this at all so <laughs> let's see if i can wing this without uh, that stuttering too much so yeah i thought that reflective of the fact that we were doing quite a lot of different stuff on the podcast now that Mid-South Moments didn't really cut it anymore as a kind of title for what we were doing. So I've changed the not too imaginative pro wrestling moments. And I think that's reflective of a lot of my Twitter content. It's just nothing about Mid-South UWF, you know, a lot of stardom stuff on there, a few moans about AEW. So we do AEW pay-per-views. Uh, we're continuing with UWF. We've got about six months to go of the Bill Watts owned UWF before um, it's taken over by Crockett and then about nine months of Crockett stuff, which is going to be quite interesting. Um, and we've also got a new show called Three From, which Ben, you've appeared on. Matt, alas, you were supposed to, but I know you're unwell. I've heard that you did a podcast maybe the next day by the toilet. So fair play to you for that's that is dedication to the cause. But three form essentially is me and guest host or guest hosts. We've got a list of 10 wrestlers. I've got three matches lined up. We randomly draw a wrestler out. We watch the three matches off it and then we talk about them on air. And we're going to do that once a month going forward. So, yeah, that is that's us. That's Pro Wrestling Moments. That's at Pro W Moments on Twitter. Unfortunately, at PW Moments, which I wanted, is taken. So, alas. Of course. Yeah, not by wrestling either. It's by some sort of like yoga thing. So, oh. yeah. And it's an inactive as well, which is very frustrating. That's the worst when someone yeah. hasn't tweeted since 2014 and you can't use the Twitter yeah, handle because exactly. of it. Exactly. Oh. Stephen, I wanted to pick you up on one thing you just said then, which is that occasional gripe about AEW. Mm. When you say occasional, can you uh, clarify? You really mean pretty much daily these days, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I just don't understand what's going on with the products. I mean, I, I, I was listening to your SummerSlam 91 uh, review, which I haven't quite finished yet. And you're talking about AEW. And I think, how is it? How can it possibly be that every Thursday in the pandemic, 
I'd pretty much be working at home probably three out of four Thursdays. And the first thing I did every single Thursday was I'd watch AEW television, that that behind closed doors with a little crowd at Daily Sprays. And it was good. It was really, really good throughout the pandemic. I thought they did an excellent job. How can it be that in front of a crowd, it's all gone wrong? And there's so much bad stuff. Like, I think you some, the, the point you made around art and act was a really good one. I hadn't really thought about. I think, Matt, you're, we're probably similar on this. I can, I can appreciate like a two random wrestlers I've never seen before having an absolute barnstormer. And I can appreciate that I can get into that. But if that's all your television show is, then you're kind of missing the point. And I think as well, like they've just got so many wrestlers and the people that I'm interested in aren't featured as much. Rampage has become like I saw the, the advert for Rampage on Friday. I'm just like, what? No, who want who who on earth would want to watch that? I don't know who half these people are. The Ring of Honor stuff, like why like why J- Jay Lethal, like you know, ten years late. I'm more in, I'm more invested now that Punk's back, but it's really hard when I was so invested. I've always thought they've kind of missed the a little bit on pay-per-view i think i've said that on the show before but the week-to-week television was about as good as any television i can remember for a long time um for probably the first 18 months or so of the product but then it's just fallen off a cliff and what it desperately desperately needs is someone to go in and quality control it so i wouldn't necessarily you know say tony Khan needs to give the book to somebody else but it needs a, a neutral voice to say we're not doing that because actually it's sting in a coffin is a prime example in a coffin match so Basically, Sting's going to allow his buddy Darby Allen to get beaten up all match, but he's going to wait in that coffin just in case it happens to be that they open that up and he can come out at exactly the right moment to help him. When you think about that, that might have got a pot, but it makes no sense. And I feel like that is that is the core issue of AEW. A lot of their stuff just doesn't make any sense anymore. We will come back to that and uh, we'll address that. And I will, first of all, though, introduce our other host today. Uh, oh, Matt sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good. I was going to say, my God, we're all fired up this week. Yeah, let me tell you, fired. I am damn sure fired up to talk about this week's show. And, and, and not only that, but I'm also fired up because yes i am absolutely healthy i do not have to shit every couple of minutes again sorry to overshare but thank god i'm well let's get this damn thing rolling it's good to know it's good to know that there will be no shit live on the air tonight again on the air we're not on the air we just happened to record this and then put it up <laughs> weeks later but you know whatever matt have you got anything you want to plug i mean steve steve's done a big big plug job so i wondered if you had anything other than your poo obviously <laughs> anything that you want to plug uh j- j- just the usual for me just my twitter is where you'll find me so you know talking a lot of bollocks in, in terms of all my social media rambling so at Matt Rob 90 with one T I don't know why I did that because I absolutely despise Matt with one T but that's <laughs> how I've had it that's how I've had it since I've had the Twitter handle that's where you can find me I tell you why you did it because some cunt from 2009 whose account is now completely dormant probably is Matt Rob with two T's I bet that's what it is that's true that probably is true I'm gonna have to track that fucker down it's probably Glenn Jacobs the cunt that's probably who it is <laughs> Oh, we started early today. (laughs) So before we get started today properly, Matt, uh, just a little nudge for anyone who has Spotify. Our podcast is available via the music streaming service and has been since the start. But the main reason I'm plugging it now is that we've got a number of playlists up there where you can listen to specific episodes based on your taste. For example, we have a WWE only playlist, which, as you might imagine, only contains our WWE reviews. Equally, we have a playlist which allows you to listen to all our episodes, but in the order of the events taking place in real time. So from AWA's Christmas night, 1984, right the way through to this year's WWE. Rumble. 
topic time and i'm glad you're both fired up because i think this one might be quite emotional well it might not be oh but i'm, I'm, not, I'm not emotional is probably not the right word but maybe controversial is the word my question today is intergender matches so matt you brought this up on a recent podcast that you were not particularly in favor of intergender matches and so i wanted to just explore that pick that little scab just a little bit to see what the hell you're talking about so matt why don't you start us off Oh, of all the topics to possibly go with this this is oh, this is such an, an annoyance for me because i think particularly if you look at a lot of independent wrestling at the moment intergender wrestling is probably more featured now than it ever has been and i think in large part i don't want to say it's widely accepted because i don't want to speak for the entire audience but at least in terms of promoters and people running the show it definitely is widely accepted now for me personally, no, it, it doesn't work. Now, that, that's not to mean to say that it can't work, but on the whole, when, when we're talking a wrestling match, we're talking about a simulated fight. I want to see someone, you know, over there, someone over there, corner, corner. I want to see people fight. That's what it is. It's a quote unquote fake, you know, God forbid I use the F word. It, it, it's a fight, okay? It's hard for me to think, you know, let's say, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, not going to pick on any, I can't think of any particular wrestlers off the top of my head anyway, in terms of like on the Indies, but let's just say you have, you know, small blonde girl A versus, you know, big fuck off Hulk, you know. Ale- Alexa, Alexa Bliss versus Hulk Hogan. WrestleMania <laughs> 39. I'd buy it, I'd buy it. <laughs> It looks wrong for a start. When you see that image, it doesn't look right in the sense of, you know, you're thinking, how in God's name is this little tiny, this little tiny girl going to beat the shit out of this hulking man? Now, when it comes to small guys, sometimes I think that can be a problem when you've got small wrestler here versus big, massive wrestler here. But when done right, it can work. But it still sometimes can be quite the hard sell, I find. So especially if you have a really small woman versus a big, tough guy, and you see them doing things like, I don't know, like, like I've seen a couple of intergender matches um, on, on the independent circuit. And, you know, they'll be doing, the, the girls will be doing like, you know, chop spots. They'll be doing like power bombs, you know, sometimes press slams. And it, it just comes across as, I'm just thinking, this giant guy would not let, that wouldn't happen in a real fight. It just wouldn't. He would beat the shit out of you. It wouldn't take long. He'd kick your ass. And let's be honest, that, that that's it. It's, ugh, it. It just really bugs me because like it's I feel like it's kind of done to to stand out and be trendy. If I'm honest, it's, it I just don't think it works. I think people are trying to do it because it looks different and cool. And yeah, you know, if you had, you know, I, I don't know, somebody like who looked like China, you know, taking on like, you know, a smaller guy and she looks physically imposing, then okay. There are some things that I can get on board with, but on the whole, it's it doesn't work for me. All right, Tim Cornette. Um, I assume that uh, this is also why you're not a big fan of Kofi Kingston. Is it a similar thing? It is, yeah, there's okay. a whole other story for a whole other day, but that's one of the reasons I'm not a fan of Kofi yet. Stephen, what do you think? I think I completely agree with Matt, actually. Um, wow. I, was thinking that I don't have a major problem with it. I think my, my, my stuff for smaller versus bigger is probably not as... It's, it, everyone's got their lines of wrestling that we talked about red lines on this show and I think probably on my show as well like there's stuff that you just can't really get on board with but I'm not so fussed about the smaller versus bigger because obviously I think MMA is kind of help with that like you, you get someone like Conor McGregor or someone if he's versus you know bumps into someone in a pub who's 225 pounds but not 
not very skilled, then my money's on Connor all day long there. Um, and I think that kind of helps the smaller versus bigger. I think the women thing, I, I think the China example is a really good one. I'd buy Ronda Rousey versus a man. I think that could be an interesting way to go. I don't think they'll ever do that in WWE. And um, there's a couple of people, this series, the Wonder of Stardom champion at the moment is kind of has an MMA background and she, she fought in the UFC as well. So I could kind of get in, get in with her versus like a cruiserweight or smaller heavyweight. But I, I don't think... As you said, the, the small female versus the bigger wrestler, you know, doing the flippy stuff. I, I think there's enough flippy stuff with men and men, and there's enough flippy stuff with women and women. I don't, I, I don't. It's not something that particularly appeals to me, unless it's someone with a really serious background and it's a unique event because something happens. And I don't think you're going to get. I mean, I, I suppose with TV 14 WWE, it's possible you might, you might get that. But um, yeah, it's not. I don't have strong feelings about it, but it's certainly not my preferred type of match or promotion. Can I hesitate to suggest that both of you are lacking a little bit of uh, imagination? That's what I would suggest. Um, first of all, if you can buy Darby Allen beating anyone in a fight, you can buy women against men. Let's, let's first of all say that. Yeah, Second, that's fair. Yeah. Secondly, wrestling is perception. You can do yeah. whatever you want with wrestling. So if Ronda Rousey can beat a man, then so can any other woman. You just have to build them. They just have to be built in a specific yeah, that's way. Fair. Yeah. I don't think it's anything to do with legit backgrounds. In fact, I think the more that we, the, the more that wrestling obsesses about legit backgrounds, the worse it gets, if I'm honest, because there's only so many people. There aren't that many people who actually do have legit fighting backgrounds in pro wrestling and so what happens to all the rest does that mean that everybody else is fake like just leave that behind i understand why you'd want to lean into it occasionally but let's not let's not go, let's not go overboard because i mean especially in the fact that brock lesnar and ronda rousey in particular the two most high profile people with legit backgrounds are also completely dominant whenever they step into the ring they mm. pretty much beat anybody so it makes, basically makes all the wrestlers look like jabronis it's not like when kurt angle got in the ring with his genuine legit background he actually helped to make other people legit through fighting them and looking like they're equal. So for me, it's just about how it's presented. I don't think it's something that should be personally anyway, a red line or something that would I just swear off instantly. It's about if you are able to build a universe whereby gender isn't really a, a consideration, then you could portray that as being perfectly legitimate. It's just it's just getting there. And ultimately WWE have at no point presented well I say at no point, briefly presented their women as being as important as men for maybe a year, maybe a little bit more. But they've completely gone away from that again now. It's very much a male roster with a with a women's division as opposed to a male and women roster. And AEW are the same. Well, in fact, they're mm. much more kind of it's a, just a woman's roster in amongst this male wrestling promotion. But if you actually present them as being equals over time on a regular basis it work just the same way as it does that when when we talk about it being a simulated combat sport well that's fine well no longer you're not allowed to run the ropes anymore because that's fucking stupid that's not uh, oh, no yeah, one would do yeah. that in a real yeah. fight either no. so you've just got ultimately the reason people accept it is it's just a convention of pro wrestling it's just been built into our perception so it's just something that you'd have to work towards and the reason it doesn't work is because no one's worked towards it yet you know I, I that's my take on it i'm not saying that you want to go straight to it now and have like completely equal men and women in terms of the way they're portrayed in ring against each other immediately you'd need to go on a journey it'd take you some time but as a as a general principle i don't think there's anything wrong with it there's also this weird thing about because tom always goes on about how he doesn't like to see women getting beaten up in a, in a wrestling ring and i'm a bit like well i understand that opinion and it's kind of maybe chivalrous maybe even kind of like gentlemanly to feel that way but at the same time i'm sure most women would just say can we just get some portrayal of a bit more you know a bit more 
equality and then it doesn't matter anymore you know that that would be my mm. counter to that so it's a funny one i just was interested because matt brought it up the other week and i wanted to see what what was all, what was all about whether it was just more of his hating women thing really basically <laughs> i swear to god I, I don't know where this has come from but it's absolute bullshit <laughs> can i just say something to close off i just thought of there what what's the what's the purpose of doing into into gender because if, if you if you do the women and the men are as important as one another then i suppose you could do it as an occasional kind of one-off sort of thing but other than that is there a reason well, what's the point in not having weight divisions in wrestling tell you what the point is mm. is is to open up the amount of options you've got yeah for main yeah. event matches so if all of a sudden you've got double the options because now you can use women against men as well why wouldn't you yeah i guess so and especially for the right person i suppose it could be an interesting it's, it's, it's not in the top 200 things that I would, <laughs> i'm anti in wrestling so it's i'm on match yeah. list yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it well, in your top 25, Matt, would you say? It's, it's, de- it's definitely within the top 25. Wow, okay. <laughs> I mean, just, just as, a, as a really sort of out there example that I just thought of to throw out there, right? If uh, and, and again, do you know, in all fairness, you Ben, the lack of imagination, you might be right, okay? In all fairness, I did quite enjoy the uh, the run in the ropes comment, but that is true. An example that I could probably think of is somebody, one, uh, one woman in WWE who I think is doing an absolutely phenomenal job at the moment and in many ways is flying in the radar is Mandy Rose. Now, not everybody's favourite, but I think she's doing an absolutely phenomenal job at the moment. If somebody said to me, hey, there's a match on Raw next week, it's Mandy Rose versus Brock Lesnar, I'd think, what the fuck is that? But you would think that you would think that if it was Brock Lesnar against Wesley. That's the thing. It makes no difference. It doesn't matter that they're men or women. But it's just that Mandy Rose hasn't been portrayed in anywhere near a strong enough light to face Brock Lesnar. Sasha Banks. It's the same though, isn't it? Because she's still portrayed as being less than the men. That's the point. This is oh god, I got I got to walk such a fine line here. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to be so bloody careful. Let's just put our cards on the table, right? There are physical differences between men and women. It's we're built differently. It's how it is. If you are going to put like the toughest woman versus the toughest man, odds are the man is likely to win. Not always the case, but that's certainly the odds are potentially favoured that way and that's how I see it and if you put a 200 pound guy up against a 400 pound guy the 400 pound guy is more likely to win nine times out of ten and that happens in pro wrestling you can absolutely cater for this just because the women isn't necessarily likely to win doesn't mean they can't doesn't mean there isn't a way to portray that as possible hell the one two free kid beat razor about all right this isn't something you can't get to you just have to as i said have a little imagination <laughs> i'm not quite sure i'm that imaginative yet <laughs> okay right let's uh let's move on to today's show wwe SummerSlam 1992 because i know you're all itching to get to it before we start and i'm not going to talk about expectations just yet this is pretty big right i'm not when i said in my intro that this is arguably the most important event in british wrestling history am i wrong no this is this is the biggest event uh ever here 100% yeah without doubt I mean for the for the context for the time we are after WF's huge business run but we're not too far 18 months or so after it this is incredibly big for the UK uh, to do for, for WF to do this show at this point is, is massive so 18 months off of their big run in America but I would say this is probably the peak of the UK business they have. definitely 
Yeah. I guess there is the argument that those matches that took place during the FA Cup afternoon in the 80s were pretty big because they would have been watched by arguably over 10 million people, I would imagine. So I guess you could argue them, but I imagine that the they didn't, weren't in anywhere near the setting that this show was well, in. I think the, the argument with British, British wrestling was undoubtedly a big television you know, spectacle here, but it never drew any. It never drew particularly any um, any any numbers through the through the gate. I mean, I think the biggest British show was what Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks at Wembley Arena in. I don't know, Ben. Do you know early eighties? I think they drew eight thousand or something like that to Wembley Arena. Didn't sell it mm-hmm. out. So when you've got three channels for the majority of British wrestling's run, uh, and then four, pretty much anything on those four channels is going to get big market share. And I think you know wrestling was popular, but not in the way that this was in terms of people paying to see it i think i think that's the it's a bit of the tna thing i mean they got big decent ratings on spike but they could never convert it to business basically no no one wanted to pay for it <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's interesting i was reading one of the observers around the time of when the tickets went on sale and there was a big thing around you know are wf going to move some of their operations and tour here more regularly because business is so bad in the states now we didn't get that but obviously this there's a lot of really seismic changes being considered in the business in terms of how they ran because of how popular it was in europe at the time I wonder how accurate those reports were, though, especially when you <laughs> consider like late 97. Um, I believe it was Meltzer reporting that WWE was considering going back to being a local a regional promotion in the Northeast because it wasn't drawing very well elsewhere. So, again, I don't I don't know how. Accurate Is that not legit, was. though? I've, I've read. I don't know. I I, yeah, I, yeah. I I don't know for definite, but it sounds a bit far fetched to me. Because I thought the thing that turned it around for them was the in your house going to three hours and the full price. Um, I can't remember. I think that was from the September '97, wasn't it? I think because Calgary Stampede was the last one. But I did. I, th- I mean, they were in big trouble in '97. I th- I thought that was. I've heard that in more than one place. I think that might be right, actually. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of examples of, of things in there that are not quite on the money, really. The thing is, once Meltzer reports something, it's going to be re-reported and then read by someone yeah. else and reported and by someone else. Well, and then, yeah, then so. who knows what the truth, truth is? Yeah. The truth is after that. Mm. OK, expectations. Matt, I'm going to start with you because Stephen's obviously there. So he not only has expectations for what he's going to see, but he's already seen it. Matt, had you seen this before? Nope, never seen it before. Awesome. So what were your expectations going in? You laugh. I got a very brief, funny story about uh, my expectations for this. They were actually really, really low because I started watching SummerSlam 1991. (laughs) (laughs) We covered that a couple of weeks ago, mate. I know. (laughs) And then I saw on Twitter the post of, ooh, Cat service, and I thought, oh shit! So I don't, luckily I'd only watched like the first match, and but like the the opening of the show and that, I had a lot, I had a lot of stuff to say about that already. So I was like, thank God I don't have to watch that. When I saw that this was Summer Sam ninety two, and then realised that it was the UK, when I thought, oh okay, I was like, good, you know that. I've never seen it. I've heard a hell of a lot about it. I didn't want to do any research prior to it because I just wanted to watch the show first. And I, I did read up a lot of stuff afterwards, which, I mean, I, I have seen the term, one of the, you know, in fact, I've seen the term greatest SummerSlam ever, one of the best ever. Um, maybe I agree with that. Maybe not. You'll definitely find out <laughs> throughout the rest of the show. But yeah, my expectations were a heck of a lot higher than uh, <laughs> they were previously. So, Stephen, what were, what were you expecting to see this time around? How many times have you watched it since? out of interest um i don't think i've i think i've only ever seen this version of it once actually um because 
VHS and the later DVD was was the dark matches included. I just was really looking forward to watching it again, and I wasn't sure actually which version was on the network. And when I saw it was two hours forty five, I thought I was, I was looking forward to it even more because it's less to watch. So I, I just was like, this is this is great. I haven't I haven't watched the full show for at least twenty years. I'd say probably more. I've watched Brett and Davy a few times in that time, but um, I, I reckon probably ten times over Brett and Davy. I must have seen thirty times. I think easily. That makes sense. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I had the VHS version and it's got three additional matches That's on top it. of this, including one very late in the show, from yeah. my memory, which is quite strange. A dark match in the middle of two others. But it's a Tonka, what, wasn't it? Versus someone. That's right, yeah. What yeah. I didn't realise until today was that it wasn't aired in the States until two days later than yeah. it actually took place. So this episode comes out on the 28th of August, literally a day before the anniversary, the 30th anniversary. But the show, the pay-per-view was shown on the 31st of August. So obviously that is why they were able to remove something that was in the middle of the show and, and not air it. My expectations were that this wasn't going to be great. My expectations were that there's two matches here and the rest of it you may as well forget about. That was my memory of the show. That was my expectations going in. But those two matches were worth the price of admission. Those That was my memory of the show and so that was my expectations going in. Okay then, so I'm quite, I'm quite looking forward to it. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just highly, highly anticipating what's <laughs> going to happen here. So Stephen, why don't we start with you, talking point for this week. Right, okay. I've got two things I want to talk about to do with the build-up and also the day of the show that oh. are very, very self-indulgent. Great. I, don't, I really want to. I really want to. I really want to tell the stories, and I don't know how else to get these in other Do than it. right now. So they're a little bit wordy. So just bear with me. And you can, if if it's getting too boring, just kick me off the court, and you just carry on the carry on the rest of the event. Well, don't don't worry. We've got plenty of editing. So I may I may just you basically <laughs> just cut it all out. You, it you'll, all you'll, out go, yeah. you'll go. You'll go. I've got two things, and that was great. And then I'll go, Matt. What was yours? <laughs> right. I'm, are you ready now? I'm going to take you back. We're getting our time machines to Tuesday the 29th of June 1992. I was 10 years old and I was sent off to school that as normal that morning, but this was far from a normal day because this was the day the SummerSlam tickets went on sale. Now, the on-sale had been advertised on WF television for some time, and I'm pretty sure in the press this was, this was a big deal at the time. But we got something through the post from Silver Vision, who I'm sure you're both familiar with, who are the UK distributor of WF tapes there, that basically there would be a pre-sale 24 hours before the public got their grubby mitts on tickets. So I entrusted my father who'd taken early retirement a few years prior to get these tickets and he promised me faithfully that he would try all day long to do so. <laughs> now, obviously, in 1992, mobile phone usage was pretty limited. I definitely didn't have one. I certainly, if I had one, I certainly wouldn't be taking it to school. Therefore, while I can remember absolutely nothing about that day, I think it's fair to say I learned very little that day and my focus was probably somewhere else. And that was getting home and receiving the good news that my dad had acquired the golden tickets to SummerSlam. Yes. So, yeah, in spite of the fact that the next bit was over 30 years ago now, I remember my arrival back at home like it was yesterday. <laughs> Today. So my parents' house, the living room's at the back. So I came bundling in. I think I had keys by then, because it was like maybe the second second top top year at school. Came in, opened the living room door, and there was my dad sitting on the sofa. And I asked him what happened. And he said, I've been trying all day, Stephen, and I've just not been able to get through. And in that moment, for a second, I thought my dream of SummerSlam at Wembley Stadium was over. Now, I tried a couple of times the UK Rampage, but they, 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 the tickets were always kind of gone. Like, you know what it was like back in pre-internet days. Like, you, you just didn't really know when tickets were going to sell, you see it in the paper, they'd be sold out. So I thought this is over. So I grabbed the leaflet from Silvervision and I dialed the number in the, for the telephone in the hallway and it rang and was answered immediately. And I was through and I thought, this is it. I, I wasn't quite at the stage 
sure my voice was deep enough to basically pretend to be my dad and buy the tickets with his credit card. And I should say that was always with his blessing. So I, I ordered the tickets and passed him over for the credit card details. And that was it. Summer Sam was on. It was a reality. And the wonder of this moment lasted a long time. But it wasn't until later that another reality set in. Now, this is going to get a bit dark now, but I can make jokes about my dead father. So just, just go with it, OK? OK. So, <laughs> so it's always anyone makes the feel a bit awkward. But we're British. Stiff up a lip. you got to, you know, make fun about adversity. So I don't want to speak ill of the dead. And my dad is now in a better place. I don't necessarily, necessarily mean heaven. We're not going to get deep on a, is there a heaven <laughs> or afterlife. I just mean he no longer has to suffer through Fulham losing or relegations or heartbreaking England penalty shootout losses. And that all said, I, was I then as a 10-year-old buying the fact that he'd actually really tried all day long as he'd said I didn't believe it then I don't believe it now the likely reality was that he phoned at 9am listened to a few jazz records jazz was a big part of him that's jazz records rather than reading jazz mags he had some lunch <laughs> probably watched neighbors had a nap listened to some more jazz maybe dialed one more time and then when I got home from school I was the one that saved the day so while my dad was responsible for many great moments in my life, introduced, introduced me to a lot of things. And also through his mother, who loved wrestling. She was one of the old grannies that loved it on ITV. Unfortunately, on that day, he did fail his only son and told him to be pies, <laughs> I think. So, yeah, there we go. That's my first thing of the of the day. that My dad absolutely failed miserably to get us tickets. Well, you got tickets in the end. It had a happy ending. So I did. I did. Well... Are you ready for number two now? Bring it on. So the second thing I wanted to talk about was regarding my sister, Melissa. And I think it's fair to say that she should have present, been presented with some sort of award for her performance on August the 29th, 1992. So this was something unlike my father's dastardly deeds with the tickets. Um, I didn't really recognise or think about at the time, but... The 29th of August 1992 was my sister's 21st birthday. And she offered to take me, her bratty, arsehole brother, to Wembley <laughs> Stadium for wrestling. And she should have been out celebrating with her friends. And she took my far more sensible and much nicer human being, uh, David, my 14-year-old cousin at the time as well. So basically, we got there. She only had a passing interest in wrestling. So absolute sister of the year award before we even got there. We got into the stadium. We had, I think the, the tickets were £25, £17.50 and £15. We had the £25 seats. Now, they were in the corner of Old Wembley, probably halfway up. So pretty good view for football, but not very good for wrestling, really. Mm. And so we sat down and my sister just kicked off and she and she spent the next two hours in the on the warpath in Wembley she had a big 21st birthday badge that someone had forced her to wear and she was moaning to every single person in that stadium about these seats the flags are blocking our view the flags weren't blocking our view they were miles away <laughs> but she would use every excuse in the in the in the book basically and I, I can't remember exactly what the Wembley star said but they, they, their responses weren't very helpful so nearly at bell time everyone's very stressed I'm a very stressed 10 year old and she thought this is it I'm taking this into my own hands and she led us onto the pitch now obviously our upper tier tickets did not give us access to the pitch and she darted around saw a steward that was kind of under the cosh and went towards them as if they were going to check our tickets the steward sort of looked up and she expertly held the tickets in a way that you couldn't see the block or seat number on there and then we were <laughs> on the pitch they didn't challenge us we we're on the pitch so then what to do then? So we charged further to the front. We managed to find three seats about 15 rows back that were empty. And actually, one of the seats in the row behind didn't have a seat. So the person had to kneel the whole night, basically. I think it was to two parents and their child, and they didn't have a seat. So we had this. And I can actually pretty much pick out on the overhead where we were. But it's we're like little, little dots. So, I mean, 
fair play. I don't. I'm not sure my sister Melissa is a, a listener of the Random Wrestling Review podcast. <laughs> I mean, she should be, but I think she, she an incredible, incredible performance that day, and we had great seats in the end. So fair play, Melissa, and thank you very much. And that is it for my two soliloquies there at the start of the show. So I think I've already got my MVP uh, of the week, which is lovely. Well done, <laughs> Melissa, MVP of the show. Well done. Uh, no, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We, I haven't got anything to counter it. I, I can only say... <laughs> no, I know. I'm well sorry they're so self-indulgent, but I was like, they're two good stories. I've got to get these out. So, yeah. Don't blame you. And, and you know what? This is exactly what we got you on for this week, Stephen. Because, you know, I was like, well, I know you've been to it. You know, it seems perfect. Let's, let's get you on. And you can talk about the experience of being there. Yes. Um, and so that's exactly what we've got. So, Matt, what's your talking point? Bloody hell. Having to follow that. <laughs> I mean, God, I, I don't even know, quite know what to say after that. I mean, it's not going to be anything as remotely personal. But I suppose, hey, fasten your seatbelts. One of the things I wanted to talk about um, is one of the matches anyway. So, like I said, let's get ready. Now, I'm not going to talk about the main event because I have a funny feeling that one of you guys would have been likely to pick it. Don't you worry. I'll have plenty to say about that when we get to it. <laughs> Before you get go there, which, which match is the main event, Matt? Which match? Oh. <laughs> The main event was the the Brett and Bulldog match. The main event was the last match, in your view. That's fine. I just wanted to check that that's what you were referring to. <laughs> to. To be fair, given the presentation and the audience it was in front of, that that was the bit. That was the the main event. Cool. The co-main event, which why the hell that was about where it was in terms of the card. I thought that was quite bizarre. Um, the WWE Championship match um, between uh, Warrior and Savage. That's what I'd like to talk about. Now, for those who've listened to me and for those who know me, a lot of the matches that we've watched throughout the course of this podcast, a lot of them are very new to me. I'm far more modern uh, in terms of my pro wrestling viewing than I am of the past. And to, to be fair, I'd probably say... Until I joined this podcast, it'd be very unlike you catch me watch anything pre-96, if you're lucky. You really have to push me to do it. I will say it's actually been a godsend to, to see some of the stuff that I've seen since joining. And you know what? This match was one of the reasons why I'm glad that I've watched a lot of the stuff that I have. Because what an absolutely bloody good barn burner this ah. was. And you know what? I wasn't expecting it in the slightest. I've seen very few matches of Randy Savage, although I'm obviously very aware of the reputation that he has of being very good. I've seen very little of Ultimate Warrior. Once again, very familiar with the, the reputation he has of being more often quite shite. And when I was watching this, I thought, OK, let, let's see where it goes. And for me, almost the, the the best compliment I can give it is that this, for me, felt like not only did it stand out as an excellent match in quality of the time, but if I saw this on TV today, I'd think, this is bloody brilliant. The only thing that really, and I, it so upset me, it so upset me because, honestly, I, I couldn't have said enough positive things about this. I was so happy that this was such a great match. It was that finish. That finish 
took a giant shit on this entire match <laughs> and it wound me up. Literally, I, I finished watching the, the, the rest of the show this afternoon and I literally just went, no! <laughs> it came out. I was like, come on! This was so good. The story was great. The match was great. I, I was going to say the performances were great, but I'm going to put my cards on the table almost straight away. The MVP of the night for me is Randy Savage because his performance in this, I felt fucking legendary. Whenever you hear so-and-so could wrestle a broom, this is the match. If somebody said, you know, can some, you know, someone carry someone? Yes, they fucking can. Watch Randy Savage wrestle the Warrior. I'm not to say that Warrior did absolutely nothing, because that's to do him a disservice. But this was Randy Savage's match. And I just thought it was top-notch. Like I said, I felt it would hold up today. It was fantastic. Absolutely, incredibly worthwhile viewing. I'm delighted, actually, Matt. I'm, I'm delighted. Um, I'll get to my, my opinions in a minute, but I just, I'm delighted that you've got to see something that you genuinely like. Because, you know, we, we've we joked a little bit you know, now and again about some of the stuff that you've seen. And I think, you know, sometimes you seem to pick out the stuff that I think is not particularly remarkable at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, not to say it's bad. It's just like it's sort of middling compared to the rest or compared to the best stuff. And that's, I think, a symptom, basically, of you just not re you struggling a little bit with this sort of era. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you've, you've seen something that you really, really liked. And also that you've got to see something from Randy Savage, which much better represents what he's capable of, because I think some of the stuff we've seen previously with savage that you've been on have been like for example wrestlemania 10 against crush and i think some stuff from wcw in 95 that is just not just not as not as good so yeah i'm i'm, I'm that's 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 genuinely very pleasing very very pleasing steve what did you think well that warmed my heart as well matt it really <laughs> really did so I'll, I'll take you back to the night again very quickly so oh, i rushed lovely. so the big the big the big story going into this was who's mr perfect who's in mr perfect's corner so you can see on the tape when Oreo came out everyone he was at first everyone rushed where i was i was the other side of the entrance you couldn't really see the entrance where i was apart from the screen you couldn't see that until it went dark so we all rushed forward and I got told off by my sister because I'd said to some older boys in a very rude way that they should move out the way and I probably would have been beaten within an inch of my life and I would have deserved it as well. So when Savage came out, I really remember there was some boot. And this doesn't translate all that much on the tape. And some of this stuff I can literally remember like it's yesterday. And the Savage entrance and something later in Bulldog and Brett, like I could, I, I can almost feel that I was, I'm still there. Um, but so when Savage came out, there were definitely some boos, but it just didn't come out on tape or come out as much. When... It, Perfect wasn't there. I think he got a really good, big reaction. I was I was quite emotional actually seeing Savage at the start of this with the belts. It's like this was like what a time to be alive, to be old enough to be able to go to this this event in London at the time and see you know Savage, who was my favourite at the time. Brett was my number two. Savage was my number one. I absolutely love Savage to the point to this day. And this is the wrong event. I still think, and, I, and I'll put I'll, I'll, I'll put this against anything anyone else can tell me. Savage versus Warrior at WrestleMania Seven from the start of that match. To the end with Elizabeth is the best thing the WF have ever done. That is my opinion. If you want to rate that, and if you want to say Okada and Omega four is seven stars, <laughs> well, that's seven and a half. It was the be it's the best thing that the WF have ever done, and that match is five stars all day long, and the whole presentation is out of this world. Anyway, I digress. So I love Savage, and I was wearing a Matching Man Randy Savage bandana to this event. I was a bit confused in my outfit because I had a Savage bandana on and Bret Hart sunglasses around my neck. I was supporting Bulldog. We'll get to that later on. And I felt like I was in a massive minority in the crowd because they were far more for Warrior. I thought this felt big time. It was dramatic. And the near fall 
half the flare knuckle shot on Warrior and elbow drop was strong. But unfortunately, as you said, Matt, it, Matt, it was weakened by the finish. Um, and I thought in hindsight around what was going on at the time, the only results here were what they did, a Warrior wins. Um, and I think what they were looking to do was move the title onto Flair and then have him program with Warrior. But for some reason, they did do a short house show run. But I don't think Brett was in the conversation as world champion at this point. I think this was a Warrior Flair potential situation, which changed over the next six weeks. So I guess that's why they didn't want to do uh, Savage to Warrior. They want to do it the other way around. But yeah, it was a shame. But I always felt back then that when it was Savage versus Hogan or Savage versus Warrior, that there was only one winner and it wasn't going to be Randy. And it's always seemed he, he lost those matches and you know he didn't win this one either but it was it was really really good great well for anyone who wants to hear what this podcast thought about randy savage versus ultimate warrior wrestlemania 7 you can do it's in our back catalog oh, i didn't know 7. that it has I didn't been covered. That, yeah yeah absolutely it's been covered and we covered summertime 91 which is when uh the culmination i guess of mm. savage and warrior uh, savage and yeah savage and warrior match and what happens after that match comes to a head because it's the match made in heaven so that's all now available you can go listen to it and it's on that uh, playlist i was talking about earlier on where Every 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 event is in chronological order. Well, that is basically one after the other, so you can listen to it there as well. In terms of my thoughts on the match, I don't think it was just the end that, that bothered me here. It was the whole premise of Mr. Perfect will be in the corner of one of the two. I just thought this is just it's just silly. It just it just is not necessary. I'd rather them just played out. They went 28 minutes. I'd rather them just kind of maybe I don't know like I know it's title match and maybe you couldn't do this but why not just call it an half hour and half hour time limit draw you know mm, what I mean like yeah. just just do that instead I'd rather that than this all this nonsense and it, as I said it isn't just the end it's the whole bit of oh perfect's going to be in someone's corner because I also don't think that they reveal the the thing very well so they kind of have Mr. Perfect hit Warrior no Savage first then hit Warrior and all the while the commentators are like oh whose corner is he in in this is crazy which one which one is he backing he only punched savage so maybe he's in savage's corner because he hit warrior with a chair and all this stuff and i'm like well he's obviously not in either like it's obvious from that point onwards like if they'd have had him come out hit savage and then the rest of the match have played out and then it ended with a dq when i don't know flair and mr perfect had attacked warrior and savage had stopped them then at least at that end you would have revealed that actually they were in no one's corner, but you knew that well before the end of the match because it was just, they were attacking both. So I just, I just didn't think it was very well executed and it just really left a really inconclusive finish to what was a very, very decent match. I mean, as you said, Matt, there is obviously Savage is amazing, but there's got to be a little bit of credit for, to the ultimate warrior here because both his matches against Savage are, are really good. The, mm. the one one again one at WrestleMania seven is conclusive as well, so that's you know even even kind of better. I'd, I'd say it's much better than this match. Yeah. Um, but also he had some decent matches against Rick Rude as well. He's not a completely lost cause and in fact if you go through the wwf pay-per-views from the beginning in 1985 through to about this point warrior is involved in three or four of the best 10 matches i would suggest that were on wwf pay-per-view by that point you know if you take his two much two matches of savage his two matches with rick rude he and and his match with hogan which is actually yeah. exceptional it was. um yeah then you gotta say that actually even though he wasn't technically a great wrestler the results speak for themselves he mm-hmm. did actually do an awful a lot of good stuff largely because he was hugely over in fairness but that's not the point the point is that the end result were, were, did work out for him quite a lot so this for, for me fell just short of you know really excellent and just short of recommend i might softly recommend the match 
I'm sorry to use your terminology, Stephen, because I like it. I like it a lot. It's good. I don't like to rate the matches, but I also want a way to categorize them. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. So I quite like that. I would almost soft recommend it, but I I think the length might prevent me from doing it because it's 28 minutes long and you get an inconclusive finish. I think that's the other part of it. Had it been 15 minutes and you got an inconclusive finish, maybe I've been all right with it. But to go that long, I feel like you need something a bit more satisfying at the end of it. Do you know what? In all fairness to you, Ben, I'll I'll concede to to a lot of the stuff that, that you said there. I mean, it's not to say that you know that I felt Warrior was bad in this. It's definitely more to demonstrate how awesome I thought Randy Savage was. Mm. Like little things, like right down to the end where you know he was on the top rope and looked like you know after you know Warrior had been knocked down, he was gonna go for the elbow drop. You know he was looking around like you know something dodgy is happening here, and you know you could tell that it dawned on him that he knew it, and he spent ages on that top rope and the look in his eyes. I just thought was brilliant. You know, you could tell you in his head, he was thinking, shit, what, what do I do? You know, do, do I dive on him and, and take the, the coward's way out and, you know, and keep the belt or flares with it? Do I dive on him? And I just felt you could see, like, you could see his mind working as he came to the conclusion and then dove on and chose to dive on the flare. And it was just genius. Not only that, but admittedly, you know, it's, it's not about the moves, but dear God, if ever there is a time where I have to shout out a move for something that I didn't expect to see. What a picture-perfect pile driver in that mm, bloody... Yeah. Ma- oh, my God. I saw that. I was like, wow. I was like, fuck your elbow finish. I was like, that's <laughs> the type of thing you need to be busting out on a regular basis. But, yeah, like I said, I just thought... It- absolutely phenomenal phenomenal performance by savage yeah you're absolutely right about savage's um facial expressions and everything it's a very i think an old school thing that is perhaps a little lost these days because they were much more in tune with playing to the crowd rather than just Mm -hmm. the pay-per-view audience and the television audience and so you really had to sell your emotion in that moment it couldn't be subtle you had to make it obvious enough that the person where Stephen's original tickets were could see what was going through your mind there's a similar thing at wrestlemania 8 with piper against bret hart where he's trying to consider whether or not to hit yeah. bret hart with a with a ring bell and he wants to do it but he's he can hear the fans and he's looking around like you don't want me to do this i know you don't want me to do this but i need to do this because i could wait i could keep my intercontinental title here and he and he in the end doesn't do it because he, he ultimately his his morality i guess gets the better of him but it's just it, it's so hard to do and i think you really have to have been playing to the audience your entire career to be able to do this well and as well as savage does it in this in this particular match cool well i wasn't expecting matt to be so positive about savage versus the warrior i'm glad <laughs> he was though. I, really glad. I really really am glad you were um so why don't we i wasn't necessarily going to go to the main event but i figured no i'm not going to i've actually got a, a talking point which is not not necessarily the main of its main event itself but the very concept of the main event of this show because i think this is fascinating in this world because again this is really about david boy smith level of popularity in this country i guess so in the uk the main event of this show is the british bulldog against bret hart for the live attendance it is the main event in america the main event was sold as savage versus the warrior for the title because the intercontinental title match wasn't as big a draw ultimately for the pay-per-view buying public in america as savage versus warrior but for ticket buyers in the uk this was the draw was david boy smith versus bret hart and i think it bears saying that in the uk david boy smith's level of popularity probably rivaled that of savage warrior and probably even hogan quite frankly in terms of you know absolute popularity and drawing power like bulldog was a humongous draw uh, in this country 
And it's something that won't happen again, I don't think, because we live in a much more international world. We live in a, in a, in a world where we all experience it in exactly the same way. And if there was a regional difference on Raw, for example, if there was a segment that was in America that didn't get played in the UK for whatever reason, we'd know about it straight away. Then, you know, it, we'd find out about it. People would be going on YouTube to see it. People would go on Daily Motion to see it, whatever. They'd find a way of, of watching it. But back then, you did actually see different things depending on what region of the world or indeed of the country in America you watch because they used to do the syndicated cable shows and they used to have like The Undertaker do 15 different promos about the same match but change the name of the venue that he was going to be having the match at just so that they could sell the house show tickets for that specific region. So it's something I don't think you'll see again, which I thought was really interesting here, which is that basically there's two main events, not because the WWF want to present a double main event, but legitimately because the two parts of their audience that matter on this occasion will see different things as the most important uh, match of the night. I tell you, going back to that week, interestingly, I was really surprised on the night when Savage and Savage and Warrior was where it was on the card, but then it obviously we know 30 years on it makes complete sense when they did it the way they did. The week of the show, the uh, David Boy Smith did an appearance at Woolworths in Croydon. Now I don't know if you two are familiar with Croydon because obviously you're very you're Bristol and Wales, but Croydon oh, is <laughs> yeah, it's not a very nice. I, it was a lovely place to grow up, but it's got much much worse. And if you hit, if anyone from the southeast hears Croydon, they kind of wince to the point. My now wife, when she was told uh, when she's been set up with me on a kind of semi blind day. <laughs> she she rinsed out of her skin when she heard that was from Croydon. So Croydon Woolworths, I think the Wednesday before the Saturday SummerSlam, Croydon was carnage, absolute carnage. We managed to get in. There was there must have been there must have been two thousand people in Woolworths, shoplifting all over the place. <laughs> I queued up for ages to get any. I think I was there for three hours to get anywhere near meeting him. I mean, it was like nothing you could ever have believed. He was an absolute megastar. I remember when his entrance, he came through the shop and had all the kind of um, fences up and stuff. It was just it was just out of this world. And I mean, Bret Hart was beloved, and Bret was booed at certain points. And obviously, we'll talk about the match later on. But Davey was just an absolute absolute megastar here um it's just a shame how this played out thereafter really but yeah it was just um it was a real moment in time uh, that that whole build up for this for this big show interesting you mentioned the the reaction to both of them because actually i wanted to go back to savage and warrior to talk about the reaction to those mm. two because it was very clear to me that warrior was the baby face or the, the more popular of the two baby faces if you like in that moment and it's almost i don't know whether that was because he was genuinely generally more popular or because the fans were more convinced that Savage was going to get Mr. Perfect on his side. Because obviously that was kind of the story going in. I tend to think it was because the Warrior was more popular. I certainly, when I was, you know, when I first got into wrestling after the Warrior had gone, but I certainly would have been more of a Warrior fan, I think, than Savage because I was really into that kind of mysterious uh, nonsense that I now hate in nearly every way possible. Mm. Uh, in terms of modern wrestling but certainly back then the undertaker the Ottawa warrior those kinds of characters i found the most interesting to me that i found really interesting and um and to your other point matt about savage i'm sorry i'm going back to all this stuff but there's so much that i've forgotten when i was talking about my thing is the bit at the end after warrior lifts him up to kind of give him the title he still he sells the beating he's taken so well like he can't stand up he literally gets pulled up by the warrior gives him the title kind of tries to hold his arm up and in the midst of his arm being held up he kind of collapses again to the floor because he's selling the knee injury that he picked up when he jumped off the top rope against Flair. I mean, you're absolutely right, man. Savage's performance is 
is truly tremendous. Um, interesting perspective, though, Stephen, on the uh, Croydon stuff. Didn't this is what we got you in for? See, it's all this stuff. Just one quick thing about Savage. I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Ben. I think I think I'm not sure about the 88, 88, 89 Savage. Whether he was whether that peak of him was more popular than the Warrior. But by this point, Warrior and Hogan were always their reactions were always that a little bit bigger than Savage's. I think they were always just that tad bit higher. And I think as well, the perfect stuff, I think people could buy that Savage was going to turn. And we didn't know what turning heel was and all that sort of stuff then. But Savage had been a, a, a top bad guy 18 yeah. months or so. We'd seen him, you know, cost Warrior the title at Royal Rumble 91. So I think that was a big part of it. But then on the tape, it looks far more positive than I remember. But on the night, he got big boos when that, when that you know, the opening bars of his of his theme song came on big time. And I was just a scared 10-year-old because I was desperate for Savage not to lose the title here. My first of WWF event. Well, I I think you can hear it. On yeah, the, on oh, yeah. the tape. But it was it deafening. It was deafening on the right. night. Like you can you can hear a little bit, but it was overwhelming to the point of like genuine fear. That this is this is it. I don't want Savage to. I don't want Mr. Perfect to be in his corner. I don't want him to lose. Basically. Do you know what, the, the, these these loads more that I can keep talking about? You know the the Savage match, but I I, I do want to touch on um you know what what you said there, Ben, in terms of the you know the co-main event and the main event. I mean. <laughs> It's a difficult one, but but it already comes down to who really was the target audience. Now that that that's a bit of a lengthy sort of question in itself, because obviously you know you got the pay per view audience, you know you've got your live audience, but at, at the end of the day you, you have to kind of decide who in that scenario is more important. I mean, let's just say sake of argument, this show wasn't on pay per view. And it was almost kind of like a house show. And you have you have it in the UK, you know, Brett versus Davey as your main event. If that still sold as well, you know, still did as well with the fans in attendance and came across as special, great. But yeah, it's, it, it's difficult to say because the idea of promoting, you know, in America, you know, that not being the main event, I, I almost think is a bit stupid. I, I understand why they, why they did it, but I just think that's a, a bad way of doing it. You, you need to get behind one. And that's it. I mean, I, I do think that the, the WWE Championship match should have been a little bit later on. I can understand definitely why they weren't sort of back to back. That would have been a terrible idea, but I, I do think that perhaps could have been a little bit later on. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think given where the show was, you know, given that it was Wembley, I definitely think overall, you know, th- this was for the UK audience. So that that was the main event. I think it's also a couple of things there, it's worth saying. So first of all, there was only two matches between the WWE title match and the Connell title match. One of those wasn't shown on the pay-per-view, by the way, and the other one was three minutes in length. So they didn't leave it that, they didn't bring that's, it out that early. <laughs> they didn't bring it out that early, in fairness. Um, the other thing is, this isn't that out of kilter with what WWF did in general. Very often, put this way, when Hogan was in the company, when he was going to lose a match or he wasn't going to come out perfectly, it wouldn't be the main event or it wouldn't be the last match. Mm. It was still the p- promoted main event. It just wouldn't be the main, the, the the last match. And you could argue that's what they've done here is they know they're going to come up with a slightly negative or slightly inconclusive finish. So they put it on early. So even then, you could still argue that that is the main event, regardless of what the order of the matches are. Now, obviously, time gives you that distance where you can now convince yourself of something different. And I think over time, we've kind of come to just believe, regardless of whether it's the case or not, that British Bulldog against Bret Hart is the main event. But, you know, as I say, on the on the on the broadcast itself, Vince McMahon very much refers to the world title match as the main event, not the, the last match of the show. So before we go to break... Let's talk about the main event. We we are there. We're talking about it anyway. So it is Bret Hart versus David Boy Smith for the WWF Intercontinental Championship match. It's a 25-minute match. It ends where Bret Hart goes for a sunset flip. 
but Dave Roy Smith steps into it and gets the pin. Uh, and we have a new Intercontinental Champion. Uh, after the match, Bret Hart and David Roy Smith do in the end embrace. Uh, David Roy Smith offers Bret Hart his hand. Bret doesn't look like he's going to take it for a little bit and then eventually does. And Diana joins both Bret and David Roy Smith in the ring for a little bit of a celebration and uh, pyro and goodness knows what else. Let's start with Stephen. I'm going to delay delay the gratification of hearing what Matt thinks of this. And uh, we'll go to Stephen first. As I touched on earlier on, you know, I had Brett sunglasses around my neck, but I couldn't I couldn't turn heel on my country here and I had to support I had to support Davey. I was I remember just there's a few bits and pieces in this. I, I remember w- absolutely willing the bulldog out of that sharpshooter and that he he got to the ropes my side of the ring and just remember that being such a huge like I really, really was bought into that was the finish. There was a really great bit in the in the build ups is when when Davey came out and Heenan asked Vince, Do you think he has butterflies in his stomach? And Vince responded, Yeah, maybe more than that. And Heenan said, Maybe that which is fantastic like Heenan was so so good on this show I actually preferred Bret Hart's this music of Bret Hart rather than the um rather than the later one this is kind of more understated the kid that got Bret Hart sunglasses at ringside couldn't have looked more disinterested I thought what a little shit bag and like it was just a struggle for him to mount any enthusiasm to give Bret a high five which is like that would have been the best moment of my life to this day let alone anything else so yeah I can't believe it you know what Stephen that happens a lot I've noticed this yeah, yeah. and I think it's because they're just completely overwhelmed i honestly think it is i've seen it a couple of times where the kids are like quite young don't forget and they're kind of like fuck oh my god brett i just give me (laughs) what do i do and they just freeze and i've i've seen it quite a few times with brett so so the other bit that i can really remember is the same as the kind of savage intro and a lot of other bits was the bulldog hitman chance didn't really come off super loud in the tape but that that's just like ringing that'd be ringing in my ears until my deathbed uh most people were chanting both names if we're honest as well it wasn't really a split everyone was doing both match wise this was really really great but i'm going to say something slightly controversial about this match and i think dare i say that this match is standing in history is possibly a bit higher than the reality so now would i if i didn't know the story behind this match with davy and the month off and the injuries and the crack is whack and all that sort of stuff would i now with kind of jaded wrestling eyes think about his performance and the slower bits at the start of the match maybe not but I did think in the first two thirds of this match, there were times where they, I thought they could, and this is ultra, ultra harsh critique. This is, is this match the, one of the greatest matches of all time or not? Is it just a, you know, a really, really, really great match, but not, you know, up there in the you know, top, top, top tier. Um, but I thought in the two third, first two thirds, they could have kicked up a gear a few times. And I think that was down to Davies, Davies conditioning. I can't think it was anything else. Bret Hart's performance, though, subtly healing it up with great facials was an absolute masterpiece and he's my MVP of the night. That all said, I do I would put this behind his two matches with Owen in nineteen ninety four and Austin uh, in nineteen ninety seven. But regardless of all that, I love watching it again. The crowd was fantastic and I smiled my face off at the finish as well because what you know what a moment. So yeah, this was fantastic, but it's not quite as fantastic as I think it's held perhaps by some, I believe. Um you you're all right, Stephen. You didn't your face is still there. <laughs> Just about, just about. So, dare I ask, Matt, what did you think? <laughs> oh, man, this match, right. Well, I'm a little bit disappointed you got to go first there, Stephen, and only because I, I felt you'd taken just a slight bit of my thunder. Oh, um, okay, sorry. Only, only, no, no, it's just no problem. Only in the sense of, I completely agree with you, in the sense of this match is standing. Now, there's a couple of things when I was watching this match that I did think about a couple of you guys. Now, for you in particular, Stephen, being there, I mean, for me, what I came away from thinking after watching this match is, 
particularly after I did like some research afterwards and saw, you know, some people labeling as best match ever and things like that. Honestly, nowhere close for me. And that's what I felt nostalgia. It was a lot of people were winning the nostalgia goggles is what I honestly thought. Now, this was definitely a good, I'd definitely say good to very good match. I'd probably say, and again, I I almost completely agree. The first two thirds I was watching it. And I'll be honest, I, I did keep thinking back. I was like, this can't hold a candle to the Warrior and Savage match earlier in the night. That's literally what was in the back of my head for most of this. I was thinking this really isn't doing it for me. And I was, I was waiting. I was patiently waiting for it to pick up. And then to be fair, I, I, I must admit, in the last few minutes, it absolutely did pick up. I, I did felt it took its time, but it got there. Like I said earlier on, my MVP of the night was Savage. I was very close to giving it to Brett here. A lot of the stuff that he did in this was a lot of the subtle heel stuff he was, he was doing was great. I, I know we've talked in the past, Ben, about how it's so important for guys to actually try and win the damn match, which is what I felt he was doing. To be fair, both of them were doing that, so I'll give them both credit for that. But Brett sort of healing it up. One of the things I particularly liked is just something you don't really see a lot of, which I felt was quite vicious. He just rammed Davy's head into the mat at one point, and I was like, Jesus. I was like, that was quite, that's, that's quite an aggressive thing, which you don't really see. I mean, that was just head on the mat. You don't see a lot of that. So I thought, okay, you know, that that was really good. And yeah, I mean, like I said, it was definitely good to to, to, to a very good, to, to a very good match, to be fair. But I mean, I, I do feel that it was definitely coloured with with a lot of people's nostalgia, calling it the best ever. I mean, but one, in fact, one of the very, very positive things I will say, and I'm sure Ben, you will be absolutely delighted to hear this, because I know that almost everybody on this podcast who's who's been a guest as well is a massive Brett fan. I'll be honest, it's taken me some time to get there. <laughs> But I will admit, he's not my greatest of all time. Probably not even top few, to be perfectly honest. Not to say that I don't appreciate him. But in this match, I can see what you've been talking about. I can absolutely see why people do view him as highly as they do. And it almost, you know, sort of cast in my mind back. It, it kind of reminded me, I can't remember the exact podcast, Ben, I'm sure you'll be able to tell me. It, it was the one where we talked about, um, was it Brett versus Owen? WrestleMania 10. Thank you. That was one of the most, and I remember talking to you and old man about that, because when we came off, I felt that was one of the most emotional podcasts that we'd done, because I, mm. I could tell how much you guys loved him. And like I said, this performance on this night from Brett, I got it. So it's interesting, Max. I think you overestimate exactly what I think of Brett. So Brett versus Owen is my favourite match ever, which is why I was emotional about it. Brett's not really my favourite ever. I think he's the best ever, but he's not really my favourite ever. I, I don't know that sounds a bit strange, but I just I don't have the same emotional connection to Brett as Tom does, for example. Tom loves Brett and always has done. I just think he's great. I just think he's great, but I don't like he's not my favourite. I don't get emotional. Like I get far more emotional when we talked about Daniel Bryan, for example, and his build through SummerSlam through to WrestleMania, all that stuff, than I do about any part of Bret Hart's career. But that match is what I was emotional about because it is my very favorite match and it was one of the first ones I ever saw so like a VHS of WrestleMania 10 when I was when I was whatever age I was at the time so I think you slightly overestimate how much I love Bret Hart having said that I think I agree completely with both of you about this match I certainly don't think it's the best ever but what I would say and I was going to ask you this Stephen because I'm not sure Matt you'll be able to give the perspective on it is it the best match in WWF history to this point oh that's a really good question it's, it's this or 
there's I a think, few there's a few contenders yeah i th- i think that I, I i perhaps it's just me i think that warrior and savage is better at wrestlemania 7 is better than this and then the other obvious one is steamboat and savage at wrestlemania 3 which is which is is it excellent but is it's quite short i think it's maybe 12 minutes not that that precludes it from being the best ever i th- i think it's probably top it's definitely top three for me warrior and savage is is, is beyond anything and I, i'd put that up against anything any in terms of what wrestling is as uh, the way that's presented is, is the best thing ever i think in terms of if you strip that out of it is it, this is one or two with savage and steamboat I, think, I can't think of any other particularly company ones warrior and hogan i think this is better than warrior and hogan i, I would say because the last 10 minutes is that good i think it's interesting i just i just wondered the when we talked about savage versus the warrior wrestlemania 7 not to dissuade any from watching it mm. by giving you the <laughs> spoilers but basically our general feeling was very good match made very 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 good by what happens after the match match itself only very good not so I think I look at it as great. one. Yeah, I know which what is, you're saying. I know, yeah, but that's absolutely yeah, fair. And I think yeah. we actually said it, you do kind of need to look at it as one because mm-hmm. it is all part of the same thing. And as you said, that this is what wrestling is. It's yeah. a great, a, a good match between two people you care about, one of which you want to see win, one of which you want to see lose, and then the 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 impact winning or losing has on one or both of the two people involved. That's what you get in that match. Whereas I think this is a better match. And also, I guess you could, if you layer on as well, though the setting, then you know when. Yeah, 80,000 people, the biggest night of David Boy Smith's career, the, the night that cemented Brett in the eyes of Vince, possibly as someone who could be the main event, where he perhaps couldn't be, but couldn't, hadn't really considered him as someone who could do that before. Then, arguably, some of that starts to, for me, even kind of compete with what happens to WrestleMania 7. What about Brett versus Mr. Perfect, SummerSlam 91? Um, I've not watched that recently enough to probably compare. I think, in my mind, this is better than that. I think. I think. Yeah, I think I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, well, I have yeah. watched it recently, as, as, as you know. I'm really, I will, and I ask this question, I will offer no comment about your response i'm really interested in who you think your you know your era of watching wrestling who, who would you consider to be you know top one or two of all time that you put above brett basically <laughs> oh, i'm so glad you made because i was thinking about that while we were talking about it probably kurt angle Hmm. is probably my number one I, so i think that's interesting because i would i did a article some time ago for another website a website i can't even remember the name of it was basically one of those top five kind of things but it was top five matches that never happened and i think i had austin i think i had austin hogan i think i had the rock Shawn michaels i think i had i can't remember all of them but Brett versus Angle was one of the ones that, and it could, it, the, what I also factored into this was how close it was to potentially yeah. happening. Because Kurt effectively arrived on the scene basically a month before Brett Hart had to retire. So they could never have had the match, but they were so close. Same with The Rock and Shawn Michaels. They basically were never in the company at the same fucking time. Um, it just never happened. So basically, I think that's really interesting because I think I mentioned on the SummerSlam 91 episode that I don't know who compares to Brett in terms of style. Like, I just don't know who's like him. Kurt Angle might be in the running to be the closest to Brett, in my view. Although I still don't think there's much of a comparison because I think Brett is so is is unique in yeah. terms of what he does. For what it's worth, I think Brett's the best North American wrestler of all time. And I think there's no equal. And, and the only people that I would put above him or on par with him, you know, this is all subjective, are people with very, very different styles. And we're talking maybe one, two or three max. But in terms of North America and that wrestling, I, I think he's... 
uh, I just don't think there's anything. And I love Kurt. I think that's a really good, you know, really good pick. I thought Kurt was phenomenal. In fact, for mm. a long time, my passwords at work were some variation of Kurt Angle. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's my view. I love Brett. I was supposed to, I was going to wear a Bret Hart t-shirt tonight and I couldn't find it. So that's, that's a bit of a downer to end the first, first half. So to end the first half, I will just bring it up a little bit. So this is my match of the night, the, the British, British Bulldog versus Bret Hart. And I'm going to give the British Bulldog my MVP because mm. not necessarily because he's the best performer on the show, but if ever a night was about someone, this is it. This is yeah. the night that is yeah, about exactly. David Boy Smith. So I thought, you know what? Fuck it. Give it, give it to him. He deserves it. Give him his flowers. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's our favourite uh, saying on this podcast now, other than Glenn Jacobs is a cunt, which is <laughs> equally as valid. Yeah. OK, <laughs> we're going to uh, come back in just a moment and cover all of the rest of the plethora of matches that are on this show. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Every boy, Smith, you have got to be feeling enormous pressure going into this match for the Intercontinental Championship. You will be stepping into the ring with your brother-in-law. Obviously, this match has torn both sides of the family apart. First of all, your thoughts on the family pressures you are facing now. Well, I'm facing a lot of pressures in the family, Sean. But I didn't make this match. Jack Tunney made this match. But the British Bulldog has fought hard for two long years to be the number one contender for the Intercontinental belt. Yes, Brett, you are the Intercontinental champion. Yes, Brett. You are my brother-in-law. But when I step in the ring with you, Brett, I never met you. I don't even know you. But at the end of the match, I just hope the families reunite. British Bulldog, that brings me to my second point, one that may even bring even more pressure on you. The fact that you will be stepping out into that stadium in front of 80,000 of your fellow countrymen. Sean... That isn't a pressure. That's a dream for the British Bulldog. And my second dream is at the end of the match, the British Bulldog will be the next World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion. Let's go over to Mean Gene. Well, I've got to agree with my broadcast colleague, Sean Mooney. Indeed, there is a great deal of pressure for this intercontinental title bout. However, the pressure for the champion, you, Brett the Hitman Hart, much different than the pressure on the challenger, the British Bulldog. For him to win this coveted title, he must either make you submit or get the pinfall. One, two, three in the center of the ring. And then, of course, there's the question of the family pressure. Let me tell you something, Gene. As far as family pressure goes, I've proven that I work real well under pressure. But you know something really bugs me, that really irks me, is the British Bulldog actually has the gall to come out here and say that when he steps in the ring with me, that he's never met me, that he doesn't know me. Well, let me tell you something, British Bulldog. Take a good look at my face and look me in the eye and tell me you don't know me. Do you remember that far back British Bulldog when I was the one that introduced you to my sister Diana in the first place? And as far as your career in the World Wrestling Federation, I'm the one that helped you the most. You wouldn't be where you are in the World Wrestling Federation if it wasn't for me. Talk about gratitude. You know, the British Bulldog forgets he's the one that wanted to challenge me. He's the one responsible for all the family tension. He's the one that wanted a shot at the gold. Well, you know something? The British Bulldog, he wanted the big fight. He's got the big fight. 
And as far as his big dream, you know what I think of his big dream? This big dream of his of, of winning the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental title in front of 80,000 of his compatriots. Well, you know, I think this big dream of his is going to turn into a nightmare. And then tomorrow morning when he wakes up, he's going to think he woke up in the dungeon of Windsor Castle. Okay, so welcome back. Now, um, before the break, Matt, I wanted to explore with you. You didn't give us your match of the night. I'm assuming one of the two matches we've discussed already is your match of the night. So which one is it? You do guess correctly. And it was the Savage and Warrior match. That was my match of the night. Interesting, interesting. Not sure I can get on board with that, but that's fine. That's fine. If you if you have to go there, you have to go there. <laughs> so we've got the rest of the show to cover, as I said. Now, this show begins with uh, a lovely advert for IcoPro. SummerSlam is brought to you by IcoPro. Stephen's uh, euphemi- euphemism for steroids. Um, <laughs> for everybody that cares about their body. Uh, yes. stuff. Apparently, according to many, it tasted like shit, and it was all left over from Vince's uh, an investment that Vince did as part of his World Bodybuilding Federation that they couldn't shift, and they I don't believe they ever did shift all of it. They were still selling it in like '95 in the WWF magazine. I seem to remember. I bet they changed the sell by dates and everything for it. <laughs> but that was uh, that was what it was brought to you by. So yeah, then there's some sort of sh- images of the Houses of Parliament, which is seemingly the only. The only landmark in London they could find because they show it from about three different angles. You know? <laughs> and then you get Old Wembley in all of its glory, yeah. a place I only ever went to once for um, the final of the what was then Division Three playoff final between Bristol Rovers and uh, Huddersfield Town, um, in which Marcus Stewart, who was our striker at the time, hit the corner of the post and crossbar in the 86th minute which would have equaled the game and uh, we lost 2-1 and I came away crying as you might imagine when I was uh, what 12 11 12 years old um not good I feel for you there Ben that's awful it's a tough it's all right since then we've been to new wembley about three times and one every time so we're all, yes. all good the commentators for the night are vincent man and bobby the brain heenan heenan puts on a crown at the start and calls himself sir bobby the king of england which i think is technically impossible i don't think you can be a knight and the king all at once uh, i think if you became a king having previously been a knight you would no longer be a knight hmm, good facts they speculate which corner Mr. Perfect will be in for the WWE title match. So again, in the presentation, the commentators themselves are very much positioning that as the big talking point and the main event of the show. The opening match is Money Incorporated against the Legion of Doom in a 15-minute match. I can't believe this is 15 minutes. I, I hadn't even realized before I just read it that it's 15 minutes. It ends when IRS drop kicks Animal, while well, Animal has DiBiase on his shoulders, but DiBiase and IRS collide, and then Animal hits a power slam for the victory. Uh, let's start with you, Stephen. What did you make of this one? Um, I thought this was decent. However, the one thing that really stood out for me was a girl in an amazing bright pink shell suit walking up the stairs in the background. Now, I thought shell suits were great for winter. Amazing. Matt, did you were you a bit young? Are you a bit young for shell suits? I, I can't say I ever wore one, no. No, so you are a bit young. Shell suits were a big thing in the early 90s and very good for winter because it's like a double lined tracksuit. Um, but I thought, what, what is this girl doing with, with a shell suit on, on what I, in my mind, was a gloriously hot day? But I am officially enough of a loser to have looked up the weather on this afternoon. <laughs> and it was maximum 19 degrees and it dropped to 10.4 overnight. Um, so I, I don't know anything about it, basically. Um, so the girl with the shell suit on clearly was a good choice. 
first of all, that is climate change in action right there. Absolutely, yes. Secondly, so shell suits in the summer, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Not because necessarily it makes sense. But let's be honest, shell suits became really famous when the England football team of 1990 wore their classics during the summer of 1990. Mm. So... I think it would have been perfectly seen as perfectly reasonable to wear a shell yeah. suit in summer. One of the best things about um, a shell suit, Matt, was the the chance that you might get set on fire if you stood too near a fire because <laughs> the material was not very good for that, basically. Um, but yeah, and I, and I thought it was decent. As, as I said, I did spend about five minutes researching the weather from that night, so I'm perhaps <laughs> not the best person to judge this match on. Oh, and also, there's a cameraman at ringside who looked like Rolf Harris, and that's a less savoury lookalike now than it was in 1992. <laughs> well, I say it was probably, I'm sure Rolf was a horrid old nonce by 1992. We just didn't know about it, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Glenn Jacobs was still a cunt, right? Yeah, I know. Was. so was waiting for that then. <laughs> Before the match, IRS does his pre-match ritual. If you British tax, cheat, tax cheats paid your taxes, you wouldn't put the burden on the royal family. <laughs> that actually made me laugh. So, Stephen, what did you make of the match? Uh, I just thought it was I thought it was decent. It's probably better than I remember it being. And I yeah, I thought that that's basically it really. I thought it was yeah, decent open even though it wasn't the open on the night. So yeah, it was it was fine. It was fine. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's worth saying there are two dark matches before the show, Jim Duggan and the Bushwhackers against the Mountie and the Nasty Boys, and Papa Shango against Tito Santana, and this would have been the third match on the night. Mm. Matt, what did you make of it? It was, it was okay. I think it's probably worth mentioning at this point that in terms of the, this match and you know the, the card as a whole, I, I felt that this card as a whole had two good matches. We pretty much talked about them. So this, this, is where, <laughs> the, the, this is where the card really doesn't start to get good. And I'm going to be far less fired up now because it, it's not quite as good. But I'll certainly try and retain some of that energy. It was perfectly adequate is probably the best way I can describe it. It wasn't good. It wasn't, but it was just very basic. I, I, I can never tell Hawk and Animal apart, so I really do have to rely on the commentary. So I forget which one it was, but my God, they were working one of them over forever for the hot tag, um, which it really did feel like it took forever to get there. But do you know what? The crowd was hot as hell for this. You know, there were signs for the guys in the crowd. It feel it felt like. They were really, really important. The one thing that I will say, and I very nearly gave him the MVP of the night, was Paul Ellering and the puppet. Because oh. <laughs> every time he tried doing some ventriloquism with that thing, I was just, I was laughing. I didn't think that I would, but I just found it rather funny. But yeah, the the, the match was basic. It was fine. Like I said, it was a perfectly decent way of kicking off the show. I mean, what was the whole Rocco thing about? I mean, I just, I don't understand. You've got the Legion of Doom, you know, the most badass tag team in the history of the world, basically, who've drawn fucking money everywhere they've gone. They've been absolutely massive everywhere they've gone. We're going to add a little ventriloquist dummy to this act. That's what we're going to do. That That is the piece de resistance for the Legion of Doom. A ventriloquist dummy called Rocco. What is that about? It's absolute insanity. It's like a fever dream, isn't it? Someone thinking that, that was a good idea. It's just, yeah, absolutely. The bit where we went <laughs> on the outside, it's just, it was awful. Absolutely awful. <laughs> Horrendous. That's a terrible impression as well. Apparently this this kind of happened, he was introduced during a pr- promotional angle where the Legion of Doom rediscovered their childhood. Yeah. He was a toy that they'd had as, as ch- children. As if they grew up together, which I'm pretty certain they didn't. So <laughs> no. it's all a bit, it's all a bit strange. I mean, it, 
it's really weird because I'm tempted to quite give this some credit now because I genuinely didn't realize it was this long when I was watching it the other day. So I'm kind of like, well, I thought it was eight minutes and I was thought it was a bit rubbish. But given it was 15 minutes, I'm a bit like, well, they obviously didn't do too badly. So, yeah, it's all right. It's, it's OK, I suppose. 15 minutes, though. Goodness me, what were they doing giving Legion of Doom 15 minutes? You don't give Legion of Doom 15 minutes. It's just, you just don't do it. I've got 11.58 on mine. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at Wikipedia. So you're looking mm. at Cage Match. No, I, I, I know uh, the Wrestling Observer is a slightly dirty word on this show. So <laughs> I, I've got the times from the Observer. What I do on all of these shows is I watch the match and then without spoilers, I read the thing afterwards to see if there's any facts or anything going on. So I kind of watch it fresh and then read that afterwards yeah so that, that interesting but, uh, who knows who's right who knows well cage match says 12 minutes so we've got another different ah, uh, okay. time there so it's all over the place yeah. i don't think i think you're probably i don't think it's 15 minutes because i did it didn't feel that way interestingly cage match also lists the attendance as seventy-eight thousand nine hundred twenty-seven, which is mm. what i think the observer lists as as well because there's a little note on the wikipedia page about the disputed attendance of 80,355, which is what they announced on the night. Uh, interestingly enough, it, it, the note talks about four different attendances. So it talks about WrestleMania 3, which is WWF's 93,000 claim. WrestleMania 29 was 80,000. SummerSlam 92, 80,355. And WrestleMania 23, 80,103. And Meltzer has said that the real numbers were 78,000 for WrestleMania 3, 72,000 for 20, WrestleMania 29, 78,927 for SummerSlam, and 74,287, which would make SummerSlam 92 the best attended show in company history. Did if, you, those, if those numbers are right, of course. You, I don't know if this is in your kind of Twitter bubble. Did you uh, do you follow David Bixon span on Twitter, either of you I two? Do, I do, yes, I do. I did you see it. the thing about I'm trying to think how long ago it was, maybe four or five months ago, where they did I'm signed up to their Patreon, which recently has been a little bit dull. They've been doing this steroid scan, it's like a four hour podcast. But they did one about WrestleMania three. And by their research and their investigations essentially the Pontiac Silverdome was legitimately sold out as at the weekend, as at the Saturday, I think, before WrestleMania 3. And by all accounts, it probably is closer to 93,000 than the Meltzer number, because I think the Meltzer number did not include the luxury box section of the of the arena, which I think is at least 10,000. So so the, the legit number for the Silverdome is something between... 88 89 and 93 apparently and someone actually went to the effort of getting a high resolution picture <laughs> of the floor and they counted it and I, so i think actually wrestlemania 3 is closer to 93 than that 78 which is but but Meltzer won't melt melts I, I heard melts talk about this subsequent to this and he, he would be aware of this stuff but he won't budge on it because that's his that's his thing that he got from zane breslov so that's gospel for the rest of time basically but yeah legit i think it was close to 93 well you know look i mean whatever the case these attendances are always mucked about with on yeah, yeah. we have to yeah. always do it and uh actually you know what it's interesting i we when i used to be a season ticket holder at bristol rovers we we regularly used to guess the attendance for the matches mm. because you could kind of tell if if one corner of the stadium was full or stadium ground let's be honest mm. if one corner of the ground was full you could say oh it's probably six thousand if another corner was full it was like well it's about seven thousand etc and we used to regularly be like there's no way there's that many people in here or there's no way there's not that there's less than we've said there is like yeah. sometimes they come in massively under and you're like there's something dodgy going on here from a tax perspective as well <laughs> yes. so don't so don't account that out as another reason why wwe 
yeah. sometimes muck about with their with their numbers. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Let's move on. So we have backstage. Gino, Gino Oakland is with Ric Flair. Flair says that he is ready and dressed for action as he always stays ready. Oakland asks Flair which corner Mr. Perfect will be in for in the main event. And Flair, however, does not answer. Brit standard this. Not nothing to shout about, really, was it? Sean Mooney is backstage with Virgil after this. Virgil says that he has survived all the roughest streets and that he is too legit to quit ahead of his match with Nails. <laughs> this is Virgil, what he said. This is what he said. I'm only, I'm only reporting the news here. Virgil said he had survived all the toughest streets around the world. Did he make a <laughs> habit of going, like, visiting really awful places to see if he could survive, like Danny Dyer and Football Factories years ago? Like, I don't understand what this was. Like, you can only go up in, I mean, you might move around a bit. What was going on here? I just thought, yeah, it's not yep. really the sort of holiday I'd like to go on anyway. No, uh, Stephen, t- he's claimed all the toughest streets <laughs> in the world. He must have done a series like Ross Kemp on gangs. <laughs> Too legit to quit. Wow, Virgil. Yes, indeed. And that is next up, Nails against Virgil in a uh, mercifully short uh, three or four minute match, in fact, which ends with basically Nails applies a choke type move and the referee deems it perfectly legal and wins the match. Matt, so I'm assuming you're going to absolutely love this one. I mean, after all, Virgil is too legit to quit, Matt. (laughs) First off, who the hell is Nails? Seriously, who the hell is Have you not heard of Nails before, Matt? No. Okay, so Nels is infamously the guy who uh, basically threatened to kill or beat up Vince McMahon backstage um, after they had a disagreement. And I think subsequently may have made some accusations as well about yeah. Vince, Vince potentially or someone potentially backstage coming on to him. Um, Vince. Yeah. Vince coming on to him. So yeah. he did turn up in WSW briefly the following year as the prisoner. You'll be interested to know. But basically they brought him in because they wanted someone to face Big Boss Man in Little Feud. Do you know, as soon as I heard his name and saw his outfit, I just thought, oh, this is going to suck in it. In fact, I think I literally just wrote in my notes, this is going to be ugly. And and it was. Um, There wasn't much to it other than Nails just trying to physically choke him. He won with a variation of like a, a it basically came across like a sleeper. But Vince was on commentary calling it a choke, which obviously you can't choke. But a sleeper is kind of like a choke, so whatever. Yeah, he, he beat him up with a nightstick afterwards. I mean, this was no good. What else can he say? This was no good. Also, why has Jeff Daniels been given a wrestling career? That's what I want to know. You got He looks just like him, the guy from Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, he, he just has. looks like him. Anyway, <laughs> Stephen, I, I guess you thought you, maybe you, I can come to you then for some positivity around this one. Well, believe it or not, and I think you may find it hard to believe, but Nails was legitimately a heartthrob who looked a bit like a young, stunning Steve Austin in Mid-South under his under the name Kevin Kelly in early 85. Oh, yeah. But I don't know what happened between 85 and 92, because that's not that long, but the looks are gone. And he looks like he's had <laughs> some troubled times in those seven years. He was in jail. What do you want? And, oh, yeah, of course he was. He was in he jail because... that from me. Yeah, he was in jail because he got a parking ticket on Mother's Day when he was stopping to buy his mum some flowers, according to Bobby That's right. which is a great line. Yeah. There was actually a Nails sign in the crowd. Like, I can't imagine anyone really liking <laughs> this guy at the time, which is unbelievably bad. This was awful. Nails nailed Virgil with a nightstick, and Heenan said he got him right in the wickets, which was brilliant. And actually, the best thing of this whole thing was just before the match, we got a lovely shot of the absolutely jam-packed Olympic Gallery at Wembley, the old top tier that was 
suspe- it's suspended, easy for me to say, from the top tier, basically, which was it's suspended from the roof. So, yeah, that was completely packed up there. I don't know what sort of view you would have got there, even worse than my original tickets. But, yeah, this was, I mean, Wembley looked so good on that night. But that was, uh, yeah, a shot of that was better than this match, definitely. So just to give you a little bit more context around Nails and his uh, stuff with Vince McMahon. So uh, he was released from his contract in December of 92 after he attacked Vince McMahon in his office over a financial dispute. Apparently, while John Nord, who is the berserker, watched the door. So apparently Nails and Berserker decided to team up and uh, do this thing. Uh, apparently the incident occurred in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, Brad Hart talks about it in his autobiography in a little bit of depth. Uh, and it led to a series of lawsuits between Nails, Wachols is his real name, and mm. the WWF. Nails alleged that Maman had given him steroids on a number of occasions, which Maman obviously denied. And he then filed a wrongful termination lawsuit claiming McMahon had sexually assaulted him. He also was one of the people who testified against Vince McMahon at the steroid, steroid trial in 1994. And I believe was one of the reasons, or this was one of the many reasons, why that in the end was thrown out. Because what a ridiculous, what a ridiculous witness to bring in. Somebody who had physically assaulted him and had obviously had a personal dispute with him was going to colour his testimony, even if those things actually happened. Uh, it was going to colour people's view of his testimony when he spoke about it. So it's not not really a surprise that Vince won his won his court case in the end. And nobody's going to believe a guy called Nails. <laughs> Especially spelt with a Z, as if yeah. it's really cool. You know, this I, I seem to remember that really caught on in the late, in the early 2000s, ending words with a Z. The Dudley boys, the Hardy boys, pretty Radicals. much anything that end, yeah, anything that ended with an S was uh, was changed to a Z. My, the hotel I'm staying in in Cardiff ends with a Z. Can you guess it, Matt? It's quite near the stadium. Oh. It should be an S. Should be an S as well. God, no, that, yeah. is, that a, is that a budget hotel or what? <laughs> it is a budget hotel because we didn't we didn't book it early enough. Because even though the cut thing wasn't, can't remember how it worked. Now I think tickets weren't on sale, but the event was happening. I didn't do I didn't do the hotel until the tickets weren't on sale. Sleepers. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a really bad um, nightclub. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> Next up, Lord Alfred Hayes is backstage trying to get into Savage's dressing room. He says that the door has been locked for a long time and nobody is answering, which he's apparently taking to mean that something suspicious is going on, not that nobody's there, which is an interesting one. Uh, they had to have Lord Alfred Hayes on this show, didn't they, really? I mean, it's in Britain. He was still with the company about three years later, so it's mad that he was still going, but um, you don't see as much of him as time wears on, but he was always going to be here. My note on this is Alfred had a large dong, apparently. don't know where <laughs> I read that, but have you heard that? Uh, not until no. now. <laughs> I think that's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who am I to who am I to dispute that? <laughs> Lord Alfred Hayes and his huge hammerhead. Lovely. Yeah. Right. Uh, Gene Oakland is there in backstage with Sensational Sherry. They show a video of Shawn Michaels costing Rick Martel a match against Bret Hart and then Martel flirting with Sherry during a Shawn Michaels match. And then Sherry giving him a wink back. She also then comes to the ring during a match that Martel was having where she's wearing a, a, a very nice dress. Then they come back to Dean uh, Oakland and Sensational Sherry. Sherry says that both men are extremely attractive and therefore have both agreed not to hit each other in the face. So apologies for my garbled uh, description of all this stuff. <laughs> Any thoughts on that promo? No? Okay, I'll move on. Oh, I was <laughs> waiting for you, Matt. I was, all I was going to say was the back and forth wink between Martel and Sherry was brilliant. I thought Sherry's facials were, were fantastic. And also a little bit odd they're doing a kind of 
which way which way will they go angle twice on this show we've obviously perfect later on and sherry in this yeah agreed and strangely also i mean we can talk about it in a minute because the match is going to happen but hill versus hill yeah yeah, yeah. very yeah. rare just in general that's rare you know let alone for the time were they here were they both heels i mean yeah yeah really odd but they were so this one then, Shawn Michaels versus Rick Martel, which is up next, goes for eight minutes and six seconds. And it ends in a double counter when there's all kinds of nonsense with Sensational Sherry at ringside, including her pretending to faint and the two men continuing to fight over which one of them then got to carry her, her to the back. Uh, Stephen, your thoughts? Uh, Martel wore all white tennis gear in the ring and Vince said Wimbledon was about two months ago. I, I don't know that Grand Slam, Wimbledon. <laughs> um, I thought Sean got a babyface reaction coming out here um, and I've got no recollection of that whatsoever. Vince talking about Sherry having a part of her outfit missing and it being too bad takes on a whole connotation, a whole different connotation in 2022. The Martel and Sherry hug halfway through this was weird with Vince screaming, she likes it. Um, <laughs> and they had a spot where they pulled each other's tights down, which Vince absolutely loved and said, my goodness, talk about cheek to cheek. Um, I thought the finish was awful. Um, it, made, it was made worse by Vince wondering out loud whether Sherry had had a heart attack, which was bad taste. Martel actually did heart massage. The aftermath went on for so long and I couldn't see any of this because it was still light, so I couldn't see the screen, and it was all on the other side of the ring. So, um, yeah, I thought this, there was some decent in-ring work while it lasted, but dreadful creative. Um, and Michaels would be Intercontinental Champion by then. Again, I don't think they knew that at this point. Uh, but why couldn't he just win this? It was weird. And they didn't follow this up with a house show run either. So, very odd creative, I thought, here. Yeah. And uh, Matt, you didn't realise this was Hill versus Hill either. No, because I, I, I felt they both had the, the moments of, like, of certain people cheering them as well. So... Yeah, it, it was kind of difficult to tell. Um, the, the, this sort of period of WWE, I mean, it, it's not really... A lot of the stuff they do is really not for me. It's just, it's just too cartoony. And the whole, I'm not going to punch you in the face because I'm a pretty model. And, oh, it just came across as just utter nonsense to me. And just it's just not my cup of tea. Considering that, you know, a, a lot of WWE, particularly at this time, was geared towards kids as well. The amount of sort of sexual innuendos and stuff between Sean and Sherry, I was like, Ugh, maybe not the right thing to do, but whatever. Yeah, the, the, the Vince's commentary on cheek to cheek and whatever, just fascinated with asses throughout this match. Nah, but I, th I think this match kind of falls into two categories as well as the match itself and the post-match, because the post-match felt like it'd take bloody forever. And it, again, I, I just come down to how childlike it is that... The major selling point of this was, oh, are they going to throw a bucket of water over them? <laughs> oh, my God. I've actually forgotten that. <laughs> Fuck off, man. I mean, come on. I mean, that's the type of shit you do when you're a kid. Oh, my God, he threw water over me. I was like, come on. I can't take that serious. This sucked. I feel like I got my fire back already. Who's next? <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes, Matt, that you don't you struggle to you struggle to amend your judgment on things based on who is, who is the intended audience for something. Do you know what I mean? When you were talking about there, this is like a kids thing. It's largely for kids. I mean, what do you want? That's what WWF. That's where WWF were kind of targeting their audience to. And I, I also find it quite interesting. I think you I maybe accept some of this stuff more because by 1994 it was still kind of like this and it would continue to be for at least another year or so after that. But you started watching in 2001, which is kind of a much harder edged 
moment in time. So again, you'll have thought of wrestling as being something, and possibly it'll be interesting to see if the rule properly does go PG-14 again, and maybe even does some things that are much more like the Attitude Era. Whether there are lots of fans who got into it maybe from 2009 onwards, who are a little bit turned off by what happens and think this isn't what wrestling is, because they're view i I assume of wrestling is that it's very much the pg era wwf thing that they've been doing largely for what 11 12 years god they'd be wrong (laughs) no but it's just interesting i think i think it's one of those things where wrestling ultimately this is about as you said the audience that they're that the audience that they're courting here are the are the family audience now admittedly the subject matter of this isn't necessarily going to help that so much. But the end point where Rick Martel throws water on Sensational Sherry was very well received by the fans in attendance. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bad match. What do you want? It's a really bad match. And it's really funny. There was a I went on a uh, podcast with um, Rory McNamara from the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast a little while ago. He does a number of podcasts. And one of the ones he does is uh, Senior Video, which is basically where he kind of reviews a old Silver Vision home video from back in the day policy home video where but the specials not the pay-per-views mm. and the one we did was i can't remember what it was now i think it was like wrestlefest 94 or something like that basically it was just a series of matches from various points during the year early 1994 so it's perfect for me because it's stuff i hadn't seen before but from properly in my era and um he mentioned on that about Shawn michaels even at the beginning of 1994 not quite being there yet um, as a great wrestler and i i hadn't really ever thought about it before he said it but since then i very much kind of noticed this in 93 he had a couple of very good matches with marty Gennetti, but what are you going to do they knew each other really well and also they're both decent wrestlers especially at the time you know you put those two together it's almost a dream match given the the level of overall quality but he isn't quite there is he he's just not quite got it at this point he's not quite the product that he would go on to be and that's the weird thing is he's not exactly a rookie either i mean he'd been wrestling since like 1985 six i think i think his first match was in mid-south in 1985 yeah yeah so he's he's been a pro for seven years he's been on the wwf roster for three or four of those like he's he's really not a newcomer and he's still got some way to go in terms of his development which i find really interesting and he'd never get anywhere near as good as brett was The, the the bitterness is real people the yeah it really on. is Sean's better. really matt thing is, there's so many people that does that do Shawn Michaels better than Shawn Michaels. AJ Styles is better than Shawn Michaels. AJ Styles is probably one of the most overrated people going today. Well, I think the problem with AJ Styles is AJ Styles has been past it for probably five years. He peaked years ago. Yeah, but AJ Styles, TNA and New Japan is, you know, oh, and also has Shawn retired by the point AJ Styles is now? I think he probably had, didn't he? And AJ, AJ's overall run must be longer than Shawn Michaels now as well. I would have thought. I'm gonna offer it up because we're now we're talking about AJ Styles. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this. We've got far away from Shawn Michaels, which I, to be honest, I don't want to get into the Shawn Michaels versus Bret Hart conversation because it's coloured by emotion and also Matt's just being a troll basically. <laughs> but um, hey, I've already a- given my Bret Hart flowers already. I think AJ Styles is better now than he's ever been. Well, not now. But his WWF run has been better than he's ever been before. I'm going to slightly amend that. When he went to Japan, from then on, I think he's been great. I think before that, he wasn't up to much. He was a very good in-ring athlete and acrobat, but he didn't have the whole package. He couldn't, he couldn't draw, he couldn't draw worth a damn anywhere else. Went to Japan, 
and suddenly he figured out how to be a killer really exciting heel with a presence about him yeah he had no presence prior to that point so when he turned up in wwf for the first two three years of his wwf run i thought he was fantastic because he had it all now he could all he could wrestle he was a fantastic wrestler but he also had that presence he looked and felt like a superstar all of a sudden which he'd never done in tna as far as i'm concerned and he never drew anything in tna because tna didn't draw anything whereas suddenly he was now genuinely a top tier star so I've got a little bit of different perspective on that. I, I I, mean, no doubt he was a great wrestler in TNA, but just that's all it was. And for me, that's only one of one part of the package and there's far more to it than that. Yeah, I'd agree. I think actually I, I'm, I'm a bit of a you know, spot monkey fan, really. Let's <laughs> be honest. Come on. But I think you're right. I think I, I think Bullet Club AJ Styles all the way through to probably the one that I the, 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 the part point at which I thought AJ had, had peaked was the a peak before was the Nakamura match at WrestleMania. I thought I think the expectations of that were really really high, and, they, and neither of them could get there. Mm. Whereas they had a match, uh, I think it was Wrestle Kingdom match a few years before that, which was really yeah. really superb. So all of that stuff and his indie work and all that stuff, I thought around that time was was superb. But anyway, sorry, we're digressing well away from Martell and Shawn Michaels, aren't we? We are superbly. I mean, you know, and also like we're doing Rick Martel an incredible disservice, which old man will not be happy with <laughs> uh, in not talking about him. Because ultimately, at the end of this, he's the baby face of the piece, isn't he? He's the one who's dunked the water on Sherry. So, um, yeah, yep. he's yeah. the baby face. But yeah, Hill versus Hill. I just find this a really strange dynamic and really strange that they would do it. They've obviously got a baby face versus baby face match in the Savage Warrior match. So maybe this was just them evening it all up. I don't know. Weird. Hmm. So we get uh, Sean Mooney backstage with the Nasty Boys and Jimmy Hart. They seem very happy at Sherry's displeasure, which is weird because they're also heels. They say they should have got a title shot as they are the number one contenders. They ask Hart to confirm they'll get a title shot. And Jimmy Hart briefly hesitates before continuing that they will get one. Give you a little bit of context. This is all kind of feeding into a thing that was Jimmy Hart's story for 92, which is he had three tag teams at the beginning of the year, them being the Nasty Boys, the uh, Money Inc. and the uh, Natural Disasters. And gradually, the Natural Disasters obviously were already babyfaces by this point, and gradually the Nasty Boys would turn babyface as well because of the fact that the uh, because of the fact that Money Inc. Um, were, were, got the titles and the Nasty Boys couldn't get the title shot from them, even though they're both Jimmy Hart teams. Before the next match, the genius recites a lovely little poem, which I haven't written down this time. I did write down the last one, I think. Did you? Did he review get this? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that Jerry Sag said unkindly about uh, Sherry. Did you see the mascara running off that dog's face? It was like an oil slick on the Thames. I think he meant Thames. But sorry, I I didn't get the genius's poem, alas. No, but that's worth saying. I mean, that Jerry Stags comment, that's a bit, that's rough, isn't it? That's just, to be honest, that's really rough. And it's another heel as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, you, I feel like in this era as well, I, it's funny, In during the SummerSlam 91 uh, review, I made the point that that's the end of an era. And I really believe it now because a lot of this stuff is different. Like, I don't think you'd have got the heels kind of making fun of other heels in 1991 and before that point. No, I, I also don't think you'd have got heel versus heel at any point during that period you'd have got babyface versus babyface occasionally but not heel versus heel that's just that's just strange yeah so he recites the poem ahead of the natural disasters versus the beverly brothers match which is for the tag team titles the natural disasters are the defending champions this one goes for 10 and a half minutes another one i didn't realize was so fucking long 
Again, according to Wikipedia, it might be. Let me just check cage match, see if that's any different. 1021, I've got, so I think that's okay. right. Yeah. That's about right then. The, and it ends when Earthquake hits an avalanche, a power slam, and the Earthquake splash, which after the SummerSlam 1991 episode, I finally know the name of, to get the victory out of one of the Beverly's, but I didn't know which one because Blake and Bo, I cannot tell apart for the life of me. Uh, Stephen, your thoughts? I thought the disaster's got a really great reaction from the crowd. Um, and I don't remember them being as over as this. And, and Vince also loved getting a few English gags in this. He got japing about the Earl of Sandwich and also about London Bridge falling down. Um, Heenan said he wasn't sure if there had ever been an earthquake in London. Well, I can report, just like my weather research earlier on, <laughs> the biggest earthquake ever in London was in April 1580. Wow. Um, and that, that earthquake caused extensive damage in the southeast of England and also northern France. It was predated the Richter scale, but some places said it was around a seven. Now, I don't know how they worked that out, so they made it up. Now, I experienced an earthquake myself firsthand on the 2nd of January 2020 uh, in Tokyo when it was a 5.6 magnitude earthquake, 112 kilometres off the coast of Tokyo. And it literally felt like someone would, you know, like an annoying mate would wake you up by shaking the bed. It felt like that. My wife did not believe me. She did not wake up until I, I informed her by, I think it was some sort of, earthquake twitter which i now follow so um yes ever since that day so yeah that was it uh, i thought the the match dave Meltzer wrote in the observer that he thought this match was terrible i thought it was quite inoffensive and actually i thought earthquake was pretty good when he came in here so um typhoon did something weird and botched a spot but i thought earthquake was good so this was okay i thought i think earthquake is by far and away the better of the two yeah and i think he's got a proven track record of that i think he's always actually quite decent i think it's wrestle crap where the guy who wrote, who wrote it talks quite extensively about um john tenter because he was he knew him and he was his mate and stuff and john tenter had been given a shit ton of the wrestle crap gimmicks basically and he said that basically earthquake john tenter was a guy that was pretty decent he just didn't really have a look just couldn't yeah. and ultimately therefore basically did what he was given to the best of his ability but was often given complete crap but i've always thought he was pretty decent earthquake but i wasn't looking forward to the, the natural disasters against the beverly brothers gotta be <laughs> honest matt um, well, I'll very briefly share um, an earthquake anecdote, seeing, seeing as we are on them. Um, I, I think it would have been about four or five years ago now um, that we actually had one in Wales, which don't recall the last one, as far as I know. There is one. It has been for a very long time. But I was sat in my living room and I just thought, huh, I must have left the washing machine on. <laughs> Literally, the next thing I know, it comes up on Twitter, did anybody else feel the earthquake? I was like, oh, fucking earthquake. <laughs> There we go. Apparently there was one. Do you know, I think the, the word you use there, Stephen, inoffensive is probably the, the best way to describe this match. Again, it's, it, 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 was, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was just kind of there. This was the very first time of me seeing the Beverly Brothers. I can't say I was blown away by them, with the exception of one thing, actually, which they did do, which did surprise me. I can't remember what the move is called, so you'll have to bear with me. But for those who remember Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas as a tag team... One of the moves they do, one of the guys would hold them, while the opponent, while they're on the top rope. The other guy would sort of vault over them and jump onto their back, which kind of like a backbreaker type thing, which mm. I always thought was a really great tag team move. And they they did that here, and I thought that's quite ahead of its time, so that's kind of cool. And that's way, and that's as good as the Beverly Brothers got in this match. Uh, the crowd liked it, you know. What what more can you do? Uh, I I mean, literally, one of my final notes on this is, my God, the crowd is loud, so. Match, yeah, pretty much the best way to describe it. Nah. Yeah, I mean it wasn't wasn't up to much. I this is what I remember from this show is lots and lots of bloody tag teams and not very interesting tag teams. Mm. 
So, like, I think also, obviously, on the pre-show, you get the Bushwhackers and the Nasty Boys in a six-man tag match. So, again, there's another couple of tag teams. I mean, there were a lot of tag teams around. They're just none of them really that worth much, to be perfectly honest. Even Money, Inc., by this point, DiBiase was getting towards the end of his career, so it wasn't really uh, anywhere near his peak anymore. And, yeah, just all of them are just a bit like, oh, God. I think this is the final night as well Legion of Doom were in the WWF, as far as, far as I remember. Yeah, the original when I well, yeah. Yeah, so... In general, it's. I just remember this being a lot about tag teams, um, and this was just another one where I'm like, who cares? I mean, it wasn't long after this the National Disasters lost the titles back to Money Inc. and Money Inc. then were champions until they lost to the Steiners in '93. So even though there were lots of teams, not exactly a golden period for tag team wrestling. Next up, backstage, Gene Oakland is with the Bushwhackers. So this is a completely nonsense, no point. Uh, segment entirely the bushwhackers say they're having great fun and that we still don't know which corner mr perfect will be in oakland says there is a rumor that there is a dentist in london who wants to give luke a london bridge which i assume is some form of dentist work and also that the bushwhackers have been invited to buckingham palace the thought of these two anywhere near the queen nearly made me sick to be honest so i just don't want that now or ever especially now her advancing years and i don't think she would have liked it much 30 years ago either so and also surely they didn't fly these two idiots over there for this this interview did they do you think they did or was this was this done in america they were on the dark match as well oh of course they were i was at this how can i not remember that <laughs> this is when i was chanting usa for hacks was it hacks or jim Duggan and the bushwhackers yes yeah, I was chanting USA during that match with two people from New Zealand and, and Hacksaw, even though obviously I'm not from not from America. Yeah, Crikey, what a faux pas that is. I've forgotten they were even there. So there we go. Yeah, I mean, that was a classic when Bret Hart was kind of up against Yokozuna, people chanting <laughs> USA at him. And like, he's not from America, he really is. No. <laughs> but there we go. Never mind. Yeah, I just was just nonsense, isn't it? Like, what, mm. why is it he? Why is it even here? Like, get it yeah. off. Get it off the television. Um, I don't really have any problem with them being anywhere near the Queen, but still, get it off my television. Not interested. <laughs> so then we get more lowered Alfred Hayes. Now he's outside the Ultimate Warriors dressing room, and Alfred Hayes says that he has reason to believe that Perfect is inside. Hayes decides to try and open the door against his uh, better better judgment without knocking, but as he opens the door, someone completely blocks him, slams the door in his face, and Lord Alfred Hayes is quite affronted by the lack of manners, even though, of course, he was barging into a door without having knocked, so I kind of feel like he deserved it ultimately i have to talk about this <laughs> good go for it this was so bizarre for me it's just one of the most memorable things of the show as well lord alfred hayes is there saying that he's breaching his code of ethics <laughs> by not knocking the door which i thought oh what a what a top class journalist is there <laughs> but then of course he decides to just fucking go in instead which was thinking okay that's not great ethics and then, of course, they slam the door on him. And then, of course, he's going batshit crazy about how rude that is. And I was thinking, no, you were a total dick and were rude in the first place. So that's on you. A shocking and vulgar act of rudeness. This was incredible. Five stars. <laughs> what a total dick. Match of the night, is it? Yeah, this is so good. <laughs> Those are the door hitting him, hit him in his massive cock when it came out as well. So... <laughs> That's why he was so affronted. Yeah. That's what it was. It's like, can you believe? I mean, I can understand them not wanting to see me, but the, the fact they don't want to see my massive hammerhead, that is very upsetting. <laughs> so we move on from there to Crush versus Reboot Man, which is a match just under six minutes between former demolition members, where count, Crush counters a repo dive off the top rope with a power slam and then applies a head vice slash claw hold for the win. Matt, what did you think? 
See, that was funny because you mentioned earlier on about WWE was, was garnered towards kids at this point. And literally my very first note at the start of this match, I can't take all these bloody kids characters. I'm really struggling now. It really was starting to bug me. This just felt like a circus and not one that I ever would have paid a ticket to want to see. So th- this was a struggle for me by this point in the show, i got to be honest. Match itself, eh, okay, there wasn't really that much to it. I mean, I mean, literally, I don't even have that much on it. It's <laughs> just like, I was done. I didn't even know what I had for the finish. Uh, power slam, and then the kind of, you know, tap to the claw, you know. It, yeah, this really didn't do anything for me. And like I said, I, just, I, I was mentally checked out at this point. Follow that. So I thought the best bit about this match was the light at Wembley. So the light was fading. And yes, I knew we've had some facts about earthquakes and also we've had facts about uh, the temperature. And now I know what you want to know next is what time sunset that night. <laughs> and it was 7.59 p.m. Now, of course, we know that this wasn't there were matches before this. So we don't know if this is exactly two hours in because the show started at 6 p.m. local time. Actually, that's a lie. It said seats by 5.45. So I think it started at 6 p.m. But as you said, um, Ben, this wasn't broadcast anywhere on the night. So this was this was live to tape. So, um, yeah, I just thought Wembley Stadium looked so, so good. And obviously, new Wembley's got some decent memories and stuff now. But old Wembley, even with it, you know, covered in piss everywhere and like terrible seats and posts in the I mean, there was nothing. Where old Wembley Stadium just was incredible. And it's just, I just thought the, the setting for this was great. But this was the weakest match on the shop at this point. And I thought Crush, I, I remember being interested in Crush when he was debuted as like this Hawaiian kind of babyface character. They did quite a lot of video. Did, I thought were good video packages as a 10 year old, but he wasn't over at all. Um, and I thought his offense was pretty shocking for someone that had been around. You know, he must have done a house show loops with the Heart Foundation and stuff after that SummerSlam 90 match. He was terrible. So, yeah, not not the best. Yeah, I mean, he's never really been very good, has he? Let's be honest, no. he was always a bit shit um, to the point where even, you know, 2001, when Ian Brian Clark came in as Chronic, mm. they were the like worst, the most abysmal wrestlers of all time. Oh, that was them. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Crush and Adam Bomb. Matt. Oh, God, they sucked. Friends yeah, they the were show. terrible. Absolutely terrible. I've but, stole yeah. an old man's line. There, yeah, yeah. Friends so. of the show. Crush I don't feel like I can call him old man yet. I should, so I can apologise. We're not that on quite on that level. So I should say Sam, really. Yeah. What, well, how are you feeling about that, Matt? Have you, uh, have you started calling him old man yet? I've been calling him old man since the start. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That's perfectly fine. That's how he's, uh, that's how he's introduced. So next up, Gene Oakland's backstage and he introduces footage of the history be- behind the WWE title match, a confrontation between Savage and Warrior, and then Flair and Perfect in the ring, goading Savage and attacking him when he arrives. Warrior then makes the save. Then Flair saying that Savage was trying to cut a deal with Mr. Perfect for him to be in the corner at SummerSlam. Mr. Perfect then suggesting that to Savage that he'll be in the corner, in a corner at SummerSlam. Slam. Then a tag match where Savage and Warrior take on the Nasty Boys and they can't really get along during the match. And uh, eventually the Nasty Boys, Flair and Mr. Perfect attack both of them. This is all obviously in the build up to the match between the two. Any th- any thoughts on the build up? I know we've we've done the match, so I don't want to necessarily revisit it, but just the build up itself. Yeah, very quickly for me, I, I got to give this a double thumbs up, actually, because this was very detailed and i've written that down in bold and underlined it they couldn't have been more detailed about what went on in the food short of them just replaying entire you know sort of matches from what had happened you know in the run-up to it so i really felt like i knew exactly what was going on and yeah like this was just super detailed you've done you don't get a lot of detail like this in a lot of shows even today and i not that i'm used to from around that time either so 
this was really worth watching. Yeah, this was great. Completely agree with what Matt said. I, I love the, and this, this gave me chills actually, that I'm the matcha man, Randy Savage, and I'm the World Wrestling Federation champion, and you're not lying. Mm-hmm. Um, that was incredible with Savage right in Warrior's face. And I'm pretty sure CM Punk did something similar with The Rock in their 2013 feud before the Royal Rumble. Maybe not the exact word for word, but for, but something, you know, that your two your arms are too short to box with God or something. That promo like was was kind of similar to this. And there was a really good bit of interplay between Vince and Heenan just before the wrestlers came out regarding who perfect was going to be. And I think, you know, Bobby's so good at isn't he? Like every single you can see what I remember my dad like really like he, he would watch wrestling to a point, but he would always be cracking up over Bobby Heenan. It was just, he was like it was like a bit of blue for the dads. It wasn't all that blue, but it was like the jokes and the he was just like this guy was an absolute genius, basically. I, I think it's a genius move by WWF to have him featured in commentary because, as you say, I think he is that relief for the the dads who are like yeah. being forced to watch this crap that they're like, oh, it's all fake, it's all bollocks. But Bobby Heenan's there, just making it bearable, basically, mm. just that undercurrent of him just you know taking the mick out of people and and generally being obnoxious and he's just funny a lot of the time. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it is genius. At this point, I want to stop and talk a little bit about alternative history because we kind of touched on it earlier on, and we did we did it at SummerSlam '91 as well because there's all kinds of stuff that that ends up leading to that potentially might not have happened. The alternative history here is all kinds of stuff. So first of all, as you said, Stephen, it looks like they were trying to build to Flair to win the belt off Savage a month or so after this, and then for Flair to have a feud with the Warrior over the Christmas and possibly into Rumble and even WrestleMania the following year, I don't know. And in the meantime, obviously the British Bulldog won the Intercontinental title in the main event of this, but they had to switch the belt from him to Shawn Michaels like a month or so later. And before the end of the year, both Warrior and the British Bulldog had gone because they both failed steroids test, I believe. That was the reason they'd gone. So it feels like there's a whole bunch of stuff leading up to WrestleMania 9 that might have been completely different had those things not happened. And when you look at the WrestleMania lineup, it's a bit anemic in terms of marquee matches that you would expect at WrestleMania. The one that really sticks out for me is the fact that they even even actually even um, even after Warrior and British Bulldog are, are, are gone, the, the way they kind of replace Warrior is by having Mr. Perfect return to action and turn babyface and then P- Perfect and Flair to have a feud. Now, you would have thought that the obvious idea was to build that to WrestleMania after that mm. point. They still didn't even do that. And Perfect ends up in a match with Lex Luger. So it's another really interesting time where it feels like everything's shifting all the time. And they're having to constantly re- reassess what they're going to do in the in the big matches to come. I don't think Warrior would have worked. So let's work. Let's work on the basis that you're at some point getting that title on Warrior, where that survive Survivor Series was not the traditional Survivor Series that year. I think maybe there was one traditional Survivor Series match, or yes. if, if any, you're yeah, right, one, yeah. yeah, and the rest, the rest were singles or tags. So I, I suspect that's where they were going, and unless they held up to, off to WrestleMania, but whatever they did at this point, business was down, and whoever they put the title on, it was going to be down. Even putting it on Hogan, it was going to be down. And I think that Vince said to Flair at some point around the turn of the year that it was you know, it was kind of youth movement time once he'd gone with Brett. Yeah. So I just don't think whatever they'd have done, however way the cards have kind of turned out, they, they just wouldn't have worked. Um, and I thought Brett was you know, a pretty solid choice in the end. But, I, you know, you wonder, wasn't there some talk as well? Sorry, there was talk about Scott Steiner in this role as well, I think, for the Brett role at WrestleMania 9. I'm sure right. I've heard that in Bruce Pritchard's podcast, I think. So I guess that's legit because he would know um, mm. whether that was 
for WrestleMania. Yeah, it must have been for us because Scott Steiner was around by then, wasn't he? Yes. So, he was. so he he was mooted for that. So they were really looking, they were really reaching for something at this point. But there was no answer there. You know, the, the answer wouldn't come until Austin, and that was you know that was years and years to come because it wouldn't work with Brett. I mean, it worked as much as it could do with Brett, and I thought Brett was a very good business down champion, and perhaps they should have gone harder with him. And that that's the other thing. Do you do you not take the belt off of him? you know, WrestleMania nine, you know, did that, did that really hurt him when he was, you know, he was still early in his championship. He didn't get it back until WrestleMania 10. And then they were always trying to get it off of him. Weren't mm-hmm. they? I mean, they, they never really went with him fully on for, you know, like a, I mean, I'm not expecting him a Roman Reigns title reign, but perhaps you give him, give him a year, give him 18 months. So they never did that. So yeah, they just was, they just weren't really sure what to do. And Vince was always looking for something else. And I suppose actually, when you think about it, Brett was 35 at this point. So mm-hmm. As a forty-year-old, I mean that's a very young man at thirty-five. But you know, traditionally, you know, would you if you, if you were a wrestling company, a wrestling booker, would you think you know four or five years of prime for this guy potentially, and he's been working a long time, so perhaps his body is not failing. You know, I mean, a lot of miles on the clock there. So would you be thinking of that? You know, that thirty-year-old. I don't know how old Scott Steiner was, but I presume he was younger. So yeah, there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts in WF in late um, in late '92. Yeah, I mean, there was even talk of the Warrior turning heel. Uh, one yeah. point. there's a sort of rumor going around that they were going to get warrior to turn heel and that would have been the way that they went possibly i guess with brett at some point Royal Rumble was... 93 wasn't that I think. Yeah, yeah 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 if all these things are up in the air and then the warrior and the bulldog get basically can't they have to get rid of them i mean it really throws the spanner into the work you know in general because you know what what are they what are they going to do and it really shows i think in 93 so it's really i think 93 is a really interesting year because at the beginning of that year as we've already said legion of doom go after this show it's not long after this that dave boy smith and ultimate warrior go they've already shipped a load of the old guys out so hogan obviously isn't around regularly at this point anymore in 93 they then like vince just goes for it vince just absolutely almost like he's decided right I have to make a clean break from the old guard. So I'm literally, everything's going to change. I'm boss man gets shelved quite early in the year. Jim Duggan only survives about half that year as well. You know, the last embers of that kind of previous era of stars all kind of just get shipped out. And he brings in every, like loads of new people with the exception of effectively Brett Shawn Michaels and the Undertaker. They're the only ones who basically survive for any length of time after that point. And obviously he benches because... Savage, who's 40. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. He benches ben- Savage. Savage turned 40 just after this event. So he's 39 for SummerSlam. Believe it or not, tough paper round. But yeah, he was only 40 <laughs> just after this. And that's the thing. Like I, I've always thought about that period and gone, surely Savage is your man. If you've got no one else and you mm. want to put Brett over as your strong champion, Savage is your man to do that with. Turn you know? him and do that at Turn WrestleMania. Him and do yeah. WrestleMania, Brett versus Savage, because you've got him still there. Everyone else is gone. But they, mm. you know, he was just so committed to this new crop of people. And I think it's really quite bold. And I've said before, I don't think it worked because I think obviously um, business continued to drop over the next couple of years. And I think it's why he's now much more likely to hang on to older guys mm. and keep them going because he, he obviously has, re- has sort of tried in the past. And I'm talking about Vince, obviously, to really have this youth movement and really step away from the old guard. And it didn't really pay off for him. Plus, I think a massive thing is I'm 40 now. I remember 
I've, I've thought Hogan was... Re- we might have talked about this on the show. Yeah, I thought Hogan was really old when he faced Yokozuna at Cat King of the Ring, and he was 39. Now, as a 40-year-old, I do creak occasionally, but I don't feel all that old. Now, if you're Vince and you're 60... Well, 40's, not, 40's young then, so you, as you get older, but if you're Vince and you're 45, then actually in your promotion, you think, well, actually, you know, you might not think that 40's old, but you might think, well, actually, 40's old for a wrestler. I want to go youth movement. But then, you know, Punk, Daniels, Punk's what, 43, 44? Danielson's 40? So there's lots of 40-year-olds that are still very viable. And I think the key is, I think the Savage Brett is a fantastic, I never never really thought about that, but that that could have been a really good, you could have had Bretton, I mean, I know Brett and Randy actually teamed up quite a lot towards the back end of 92 and into 90, early 93. So you could have had Savage turn on Brett. Was Yokozuna ever really the answer? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, it didn't really work. And then Luger obviously said they didn't, they didn't pull the trigger on him. So it was all, it was all very messy, wasn't it? You think about it. You had Luger, they massive push, didn't, didn't give him the title. Now you could argue that that he should have won it in '93 potentially. I think um, after all that money spent, because he was, he was d- dead as a dodo by the time WrestleMania 10 came. And that again, that was his original plan, wasn't it, for him to win the title at WrestleMania 10. So it's pretty unique year, really, or, or 18 months of Vince just ripping it all up, really, wasn't it? Well, it starts in it starts at that SummerSlam 91 yeah. show, I think, and it goes right the way through, all the way, really, till 94. They yeah. just can't, they just are constantly, swatch, you know, second-guessing themselves, not figuring out what they're going to do. I yeah. think the thing about Yokozuna, I want to say, because I'm a big fan of Yokozuna, I think you're right in that it didn't work, but I don't think that was ever their intention anyway. So I think mm. the idea was Yoko was just supposed to be the next killer heel that probably Brett would have beaten in the main event of WrestleMania 9 had Hogan not agreed to come back. Yeah, yeah. And then they were like, well, we could give Hogan the title. So we'll have Yokozuna beat Brett, give the belt to Hogan. And then, of course, Hogan wanted out because he wanted to get away from it before the steroids stuff really hit in 94 and so then they had to they were like well how do we do this well we'll transition about back to yoko and then we can have a long heel reign building into wrestlemania 10 and that will make that particular chase so i i think with yoko it's i think they got a lot more out of him in the end than they ever imagined they would try to um i just think he was just supposed to be the big heel guy building up to wrestlemania 9 i mean that in the in the post hogan first title reign that is the long that yokozuna is the longest heel title reign up to that point isn't it i guess uh maybe superstar billy graham was similar length oh yeah i think billy graham was a year but pr- that pre-hogan's first title reign like the modern modern yeah. era of the wwf that i think that was the longest because flair wasn't all that long even combined was it it's only been three or four months first one and maybe a month second one so yeah it must have been so that's interesting they put that much stock in but i think you're right what a mess you think all that all those things going on and all those different connotations and they just it, nothing nothing fit nothing would stick would it really for, for I years think- I think if you imagine WWE now, the equivalent would be something like Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins and Randy Orton all leaving the company tomorrow. Yeah. You know, it's basically, well, maybe not in one go, but that's effectively what had happened because mm. Hogan, Savage and Warrior, Savage was sort of benched, Warrior was pushed out, Hogan wanted to get out. And that's effectively what happened. They're three biggest stars of the last four or five years are all gone. And this would have been like literally a couple of years as well after Andre had, had to retire through health reasons. Well, mm-hmm. The Undertaker's just retired. So that would be a sort of an equivalent, if you like. Yeah. It's just it's just a weird. I don't think you get it now because obviously there isn't. I don't think, for example, Roman Reigns is going to jump to AEW anytime soon. But but maybe, you know, you never know. A combination of injuries and people just wanting to give it up. That could well happen. So that would be the equivalent. Anyway, moving on, I just wanted to touch upon that because I find alternative history is really interesting, especially when there's all these kind of plans that change and goodness knows what's going on. And it feels like a really kind of significant moment of change, this whole, as I said, this whole period. So 
Um, after the WWE title match, we got backstage Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect saying that Flair should have been the challenger in the match for the title. And Flair says the belt is coming back to him. He was indeed proven right because he beat Savage not too long after this for the belt. And then they transitioned to Bret Hart in, I think, October of yeah. 1992. And Bret's first title reign as well. This is another thing. Wasn't on any kind of a show, was it? It was like a, it was basically a house show, wasn't it? Bret won the Yeah, belt. it was tight for Coliseum video, but they, as a fan at the time, you just, you, it just was announced on whatever, super, well, I can think it was Superstar Saturdays, Wrestling Challenge Sundays. Yeah. It was just announced on Superstars. Yeah, that was it. It's something that they did, and I think they did it, I think it was clever, something they did to up interest in the house shows. Mm. So it's basically... You know, they, they wanted you to continue to go. And of course, as time wore on and as time has worn on, house shows are basically worthless now. Anybody who knows about wrestling beyond just having watched it on a Saturday morning knows that you don't go to the house shows if you want to watch something significant. Yeah. Um, but back then it was possible to still see something, you know, happen. And it did actually every 18 months or so, they would change a title on a house show just to kind of give you that sense that if you went, something might take place. I think that's a good idea. I, th- I think there's yeah. a lot to be said. I, you know, Reigns, you know, he, he's doing a good job as champion. I think that is, they've made it big for when he loses. But you don't have to do, always do that. And I think there's a lot to be said for, especially Intercontinental Tag, change them on a house show every nine or ten months. You can flip it back if you want to. Like, And I think that maybe every two or three years, do a world title change in a house show just to keep that. You, do, you, can, you can remake, stuff like that. I, I'm a big believer in, Lots of different matches for the World Championship. You've got 12 pay-per-views. Let's get different challenges in there. It doesn't matter if, you know, the, the chance of that challenger getting a getting a win is small. Like the Riddle and Reigns match, you could do that pay-per-view all day long. Like, let's get more of that stuff. Just keep it fresh and keep it interesting. Then occasionally pull the trigger on someone. You, you can get, you know, it doesn't always have to be, I've booked everything for 18 months. If it, if it catches fire, it catches fire. If it doesn't, flip it back. And I, I'm a big believer in that. Well, I think also um, they've got so many titles now anyway that there's yeah. absolutely no reason they couldn't switch a title every year or every 18 months yep. on a house show somewhere to show look, these things do matter. They're, yeah, yeah. they're worth going to, to watch just in case it happens. And Matt, I think you covered Fully Loaded 99 not long ago, where on that show, the night before, Edge had won the Intercontinental title out of nowhere on a house show, and then they went into the pay-per-view and Jeff Jarrett won it back. But it was just, again, to show that if you went to the house show, possible you'll see something worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, you know, particularly over the last couple of weeks, I mean, there's been a there's been a lot of sort of chatter online about how uh, Triple H seems to be making the, uh, the sort of mid-card titles in WWE a lot more important than they have been, so... Uh, you know, the Intercontinental title and the US title have seen a bit of an uplift recently, which is great. So who knows? Maybe they might be uh, they might be the next titles to change hands on a, on a house show. I'm I'm a big believer. I thought this a while. And I'm sorry, we really are going off topic now, but, you know, that's what we do. I'm really a big believer in them having a title, which is the opposite of a TV title, where basically they just have a title that's defended only on house show. And I don't know what you'd call it, but I don't know how you would market it, but you'd want it to be on one of your top stars, possibly even the world champion. Maybe you say that the only place he defends this belt is off, not on television. I don't know if you call it the touring title, maybe something that differentiates it, takes it off television, which means you can then every single house show will matter because then the belt mm. could change hands wherever you are on any given night at any place. And I've been an advocate of that for a while because I just they've got loads of belts anyway. Why not add one where actually you can build and it could be a big star. As I said, Randy Orton could hold it right now and he's not doing anything else particularly important. So have him hold the belt and every night he defends it against someone and then you know just like you would a normal title every now and again he loses it and wherever that house show happened to be suddenly you've got a new champion wwe live champion 
Oh, I love it. There you go. Yeah. WWE Live Champion. No problem at all. The official attendance is then uh, announced. 80,355. We've already kind of discussed that a little bit. Uh, and then Howard Finkel introduces Harvey Whippleman, a, a continuance of a feud that would end up going for about two years and end on Raw, where Harvey Whippleman and uh, Howard Finkel actually had a match where they had to rip the other suit off, I believe, was the uh, gimmick match that they were involved in. Basically, a, a Brian Pantley's match between mm. two men, effectively. So Harvey Whippleman insults Finkel um, after snatching the mic and then Whippleman announces the entrance of Kamala Kamala is with Kim Chi um, and the Undertaker is with Paul Bearer and the Undertaker comes to the ring on a hearse for this next match the Undertaker versus Kamala a three and a half minute match which ends by disqualification when after Taker tries to slam Kamala Kim Chi jumps in and hits Taker with his hat causing the disqualification Uh, after the match Kamala attacks the Undertaker does a splash on him from the second rope and then another one from the top rope. However, Taker sits up and the heels run away as Taker pursues them out of the arena. Another instant classic then, Stephen. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, uh, Joe, I've been going back and forth with the say this, given how long we're going, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep this, try and keep this to 60 seconds. I really don't like The Undertaker. I, I respect his later career work. <laughs> I really don't like him. I don't like him as a human being. Actually, there you go. I've gone. I've gone deep on it. His stuff around. I preferred it when men were men and there were guns and knives in the locker. Yeah. Bore off, mate. And also, cry me a river about all the dirty money you accepted for scenarios in Saudi Arabia that were never going to work. Oh, my legacy. I've ruined my legacy with terrible matches against Goldberg in Saudi Arabia and only seven figures. Oh, I just want to. I just want to change time and do it all over again bore off mate so i wasn't <laughs> excited about this and i've seen far too much i've seen more kamala in mid-south than any any human being should have to suffer through so i wasn't looking forward to this i thought this was terrible how did kamala get out of doing a job here the splashes were some of the worst moves in wrestling she like a toddler falling off like a climbing frame dreadful embarrassing and also a bit sad I'll tell you how the Kamala avoided doing the job here is that they wanted them to have a rematch at Survivor Series 92. That's how he got I don't remember that at all. So there yeah, you go. It's the first, it, yeah, it's the first casket match. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, okay. Well, okay although fair. they do call it a coffin match. Yeah, okay. Fair enough then. I, I take it all back. Love The Undertaker. <laughs> no, I love it. I love that. See, this is exactly the podcast as well where you can properly go in on The Undertaker. <laughs> like properly shank him with your uh, your pretend knife in your hand. Um, yes, and I broadly agree with you, to be honest. I think you're absolutely right. I don't disagree with you one bit. I think he's a complete dickhead. Matt, <laughs> what was your thoughts on the match? <laughs> I've just, I've, I've got to, just, I've got to touch on that before I talk about the match anyway, because I swear to God, please, please, I beg the both of you to tweet that out about the end and just, and just watch the entertainment that rolls in once you tweet out about it, because I, I did. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look this out because I'm gonna I'll read the if I can get to you I'll read I'll read the tweet. Sorry, you carry on, Matt. Yeah, I'll keep going. Let me know when you find it because I have tweeted negative stuff out about the Undertaker before, and let me tell you, there's never any nice responses that come in about it ever, unless his name is said with the utmost reverence. You yeah, you're just asking for death threats. But yeah, that this match, I mean, I can't believe I even watched it. Um, I've never seen a Kamala match before and I have no desire to ever see one again I've certainly seen him before to be honest I genuinely didn't even know he was actually a wrestler 
the the splash you know you hit the nail on the head this the, the splashes that you know that he was doing what the hell were they it's one of those it's the age old if you can't do something and make you look good don't bother you can't do yeah. a splash and make you look good therefore don't bother i think you know the the only thing that i can actually say about this match otherwise is a very funny commentary note from Vince McMahon. it was something on the lines of you won't see a great deal of scientific grappling here and I just thought, you're probably right. Oh, and the only other thing is when the Undertaker, the Undertaker, the Undertaker, the, That's <laughs> me. the, the Undertaker hit a choke slam, which apparently didn't even have a, a name yet. Um, it was just a, oh, you know, that's a move, or Vince McMahon's what a maneuver. I, I mean, I've already talked about this match far more than it deserves, so it sucked. I have the tweet. So I quote tweeted. The WWE, uh, WWE UK, the moment you've been waiting, waiting for the dead match. Right? Now, I feel a little bit worse about this, Matt, now knowing that you're going, but I'm going to Yeah, it's all good. I like, um, him a dick. I did, perhaps I'm a little bit of a coward because looking at the tweet time, this is just before two o'clock. So most of my most of my following and listeners are American. So they might have missed it. So perhaps I should retweet it in a second and see if I get some hate speech. But I wrote, <laughs> V gutted, so you're missing this, is don't arrive in Welsh flag until Saturday. Would have loved to hear the tales about when men were men or when they had guns and knives in locker rooms or perhaps even more about how sad he was after prostituting his legacy for dirty money. Poor guy. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead, Stephen, and really stick the knife in now and say, I think people who like The Undertaker didn't wouldn't have realised you were being sarcastic because they're fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm retweeting it. Let's see what happens. Anyway, <laughs> there we go. I, I do apologise to any of our regular listeners who love The Undertaker. And to be honest, from a he was my first favourite wrestler as a, as a wrestling fan. Like, 94, big fan of The Undertaker. And his late career quality, maybe not the very end of his career, but certainly the sort of autumn of his career, if you like, from a quality perspective, was exceptional, especially given what he had served up prior to that point. But Agreed that was... Completely, yeah. And that was largely, in fairness to him, that was largely to sell the character and the gimmick. And I think it worked very well because in spite of the fact that for the first, what, six years of his WWF career, he did serve up exactly this kind of match pretty much endlessly. He was one of the most overstars in the company for that entire Mm. time. So uh, it definitely did pay off. I can't Um, argue with his body of work, especially the the streak stuff uh, up to really the Lesnar match. Uh, I mean, the punk match was a, was a phenomenal match. So, yeah, fair play for in the ring. But, yeah, we've talked about some of the fun things I find a bit more distasteful. Talking of age, Kamala was 42 during mm, this match. Only does he done his uh, time in uh, Mid-South and pretty much everywhere else as well. Kamala gimmick was what he did. I mean, it's difficult because obviously it's his gimmick. It's not, it's WWE. It's not like WWE gave him the gimmick or anything. But still, I mean, come on, there's it's racist in it let's be honest it's a racist gimmick it should just not be wwe should never have gone near it basically yeah uh, and there's a there was a tweet that someone put out recently where it was about vince mcmahon apparently in his last few weeks had put down an edict which was we need to be culturally ignorant or something to that effect and i think it was again recent 20 years ago podcast twitter feed that said really you surprised me and then you put pictures of various wrestlers in gimmicks similar to kamala i saw that earlier on yeah yeah where the cultural um is clearly they're quite culturally uh ignorant in general quite frankly Mm. and and also about the kamala gimmick believe it or not this is this is turned quite a bit down versus the mid-south 85 version of this yeah 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 yeah. in fact i think they wwe turn it up again in 93 early 93 Mm. because what happens is the undertaker and kamala have their casket matches five series 92 and undertaker wins and then after that kamala's not the same again 
and he right. turns turns babyface with the help of who is it? I can't remember who he gets who helps him to turn babyface. And within all that, he kind of teaches him or like tries to civilize him, if you like. So it's all yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not. No. Good. So after that, there's only a few more bits and pieces. So we've got backstage Sean Mooney with Davy Boy Smith ahead of the main event. Smith says he's under a lot of pressure in the family, but he didn't make the match. Jack Tunney did. And he says he's worked hard for two years to get the shot. Smith says that while Hart is his brother-in-law, when they get in the ring, he doesn't know him. He never met him. He says it's his dream to fight here in front of all of his compatriots at Wembley Stadium. Then Bret Hart is also interviewed, this time by Gene Okerlund. Bret says he works Real well under pressure. He says that he was the one who introduced David Boy Smith to his sister Diana in the first place. He says that Smith is the one responsible for the family tension and says that Smith's big dream will turn into a nightmare. Who says 92 Brett can't cut a promo? This is brilliant. I thought this was the best David Boy Smith promo I've ever seen as well. David Boy was, yeah, pretty good as well. Because he's not usually very good at all. In fact, I think he's generally one of the worst promos ever. But this was... Actually, probably the best work he's done yeah. on a mic I've ever seen, to be honest. Yeah, bit nasty for a babyface, I thought, but still very good. Yeah, and I, I thought I thought it really bigged up that idea that this is just a match. This is just a sporting contest. Yeah. And David Boy saying that, you know, we might be friends, but when we get in there, I'm going for the title, basically. Yeah. The only thing that Davey did that, that I don't typically like is he did what a lot of sort of uh, British wrestlers tend to do is because they know a lot of their audience, uh, at least on pay-per-view anyway, is American and they're facing Americans or Canadians or whatever. They'll try. It's like they're trying to say certain words in, a, in an American accent. And I just I could feel there were certain words he was saying. I was like, oh, that, that doesn't sound quite right. And yeah, just I feel like a lot of sort of British wrestlers do that. And it's just weird. I don't know how much of that is that they're trying to do it and how much is just natural kind of. Yeah, it does happen. Like when I went to university in Cardiff, I did come away with a somewhat of a Welsh kind of twang mm. to what I used to talk because all of my mates were from the valleys. And so I used to. I've it's obviously grown out of it now because it was 20 years ago can you believe this year in fact it was 20 years ago I started there but during those four years whilst I was there I did very much develop a lot of kind of Welsh characteristics in my voice not hugely but I could I could tell when I went home my mum and dad were like what you know what are you you talking about what are you saying Mm. so it does it does happen then we get Fink introducing the Balmoral Highlanders who play Scotland the Brave and are eventually joined by by Rowdy Roddy Piper to a massive pop who then does his own solo of Scotland the Brave. And talking of shipping people over to the UK for strange reasons, <laughs> this is what they brought Roddy Piper over to do, was just mime that he was playing the bagpipes. Apparently, this was some sort of weird setup so he could get into an actors union in the United Kingdom for work. Really? So, yeah. So he needed to have some sort of, I guess, credited performance here to, to do it. I won't tell you where I got that fact from, just in case it's disputed. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a little fact about that. Meltzer, actually. <laughs> it was Wade Keller, that one, actually. No, it was, it was oh. Dave. No, it was Dave. It was Dave. Uh, <laughs> I, I might have accepted it if it's from Wade. I gave um, up my torch description long ago, alas, but I do really like Wade Keller. I, I think that I think it's interesting, though. It's, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, because why else would he bother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Then finally, the last thing we need to cover, Sean Mooney talks to Diana Smith in the crowd. She says it's going to be difficult for her to watch. She says there's always been an intensely competitive rivalry between Davy Boy and Brett and that might have helped their careers up to this point. But then she says she's worried about them destroying one another. She says she isn't concerned who wins and that she's just happy she has the honour to support both men in the match. And for someone who isn't a wrestler, or a wrestling personality and someone I think is relatively unremarkable. Unrem- Again, I thought this was a pretty decent talking segment. What did you think of this, Max? I, I don't, I, I'm interested to hear what you think before I before I say anything. Well, you'd be uh, you'd be pleased to hear that the polar bear's back. Um, <laughs> I think I'd probably have to go watch this again because I'm sure we were watching something different. I mean, I literally wrote down she is fucking dreadful. Uh, <laughs> well, she's she's not charismatic, but I'm not expecting her to be. She's a family member. She's not a wrestler. She's not a wrestling personality. So I, I, I thought, you know what, in terms of selling the idea of what you're talking about, I thought she did pretty well. Don't get me wrong. It's not like she's a 10 year veteran and it was an amazing yeah. promo. But I just thought, given what I was expecting, I'm 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 thinking I'm I'm expecting Lord Alfred Hayes with a random member of the audience. Yeah, we didn't get that. I was quite impressed. I think that would have been better. I mean, literally, I didn't need to hear from her at all. Like, <laughs> she literally, nothing would have been great. Her sort of facial expressions that they showed, you know, interchangeably at the end, you know, throughout the main event was great. That was great. No problem with that. So facial expressions, great. But she didn't need to say a word. They could have gone to anybody else, and I felt they would have offered just as much insight. So I didn't need to hear from her. So which way am I going here? Am I going positive or am I going negative? You're going positive. I thought this was genuinely, genuinely, I thought this was absolutely magnificent. I thought that she, if if it was a a sister and a wife, this was, this was, this was it. Like exactly what you said, uh, Ben, in terms of not, uh, not acting, not, you know, not putting on a performance, but as if this was legit and she's the wife. So you're not expecting performance. You're getting a legit reaction from someone's wife someone's sister going to war potential for serious damage to each other i thought i thought this was incredible genuinely i thought this was incredible i thought her performance this may well be how she was feeling because this is a big nerve-wracking this is the biggest moment of her husband's career this is her, her you know beloved brother in a position to do something incredible i mean she knows that brett's a better wrestler than davy no doubt so this is this is a big moment for her. So I think this this might have just been a legit. This is how she felt, and I thought she was brilliant in the match as well. So I, yeah, I thought she was phenomenal here. I wouldn't have gone that far, but I do think that it does feel real. It's the her facial mm. expression looks worried. That's the thing, and that's why. And her answers are not fast. They're mm. considered. It's like she's talking to a member of the press, and she's a bit worried about what she might say. Yeah, and she is obviously. If you think about, imagine this being real she is balancing what she's saying because she doesn't want to favor either man in any way. She doesn't want to come across that way. And so I do think it feels very real. It felt like, as you said, not a performance of any kind. It feels like this is the kind of thing that wrestling and wrestling fans struggle with now is that everything has to be really polished in pro wrestling these days. Otherwise it's not good. And I thought this was exactly the opposite of that it was not polished and that's why it was good mm, yeah yeah uh, stick it on mute <laughs> <laughs> one last note i've got on the show there's a weird moment right at the end of the show after with david Smith and bret hart in the ring celebrating with diana where lord alfred hayes's voice comes on I don't know if you caught this lord alfred hayes's voice comes over the microphone cheerio everybody yeah <laughs> yes 
don't know what happened there very strange but uh good stuff always watch to the end matt always watch to the end i didn't do this one either <laughs> and you missed lord alfred hayes you always need to watch to the end telling you matt telling you never turn off before the I end of the show so that definitely covers everything on the show itself we've gone nearly three hours on the recording i'm sure the episode itself won't end up being that long but let's do our overall thoughts on the show and our ratings out of 10 matt i'm going to start with you okay so um I, i've name dropped them here and there but just to, to give you them again mvp of the night is one mr macho man randy savage match of the night macho man randy savage versus the ultimate warrior show overall it was a two-match show to be honest it was that and the Brett and Davy match. I think if you take away the fact that it was in the UK and the, the attendance was huge and take those two matches out and have something different, this would have quietly slipped into the history books as a really shit show. Um, <laughs> so for those two matches, I am giving this show out of 10, five. Steven. So this is really tough to rate. For early 90s WWF, there are two strong matches. And I've written in my notes that the, the main event was probably the top three in the company history. I, I'd forgotten I'd written that. And I, th- I do I do stand by that, actually, up to this point. But in, on a personal level, I mean, this was without doubt the best day of my life. And it was for a long time after this. I mean, it probably was either until WrestleMania 17 or when Fulham got promoted um, to the Premier League the first time. And this is this is still in the top you know 20 days of my life to this day. Don't tell the wife that my wedding day is number 21. Um, <laughs> I haven't written that down. Off-the-cuff comedy is what you get on the show. Uh, <laughs> as an impartial uh, broadcast journalist, there is obviously some turd on this show. Um, but the crowd, the big two matches, I'm going 7.5 out of 10 for this. Uh, just take me back to being 10 years old again because I was welling up writing these notes at the end watching the fireworks off, you know, the brilliant old Wembley we talked about, um, you know, and roll on Clash at the Castle, which I'm sure will be as historically significant. And I look forward to our review of that when we were, when me and Ben are 70 years old and you're, what, 35, Matt, in 30 years' time. <laughs> so I've got some bad news for you, Stephen. Go on. We do not allow half ratings. Oh, yes, <laughs> you don't. All right. Uh, I can't go eight. Seven out of ten, then. Seven out of ten. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, I'm going six out of ten, so that ba- balances out as an average of six yeah. out of ten. I think that Matt, you're right. If you take out the two main two main matches, this is an absolutely atrocious show with some <laughs> absolutely fucking dreadful stuff. Virgil and Nails, Repo Man and Crush. Yeah, I mean, I even include the Nashville Disasters and the Beverly Brothers, to be honest, in that in that kind of thing. Undertaker Kamala is still worse than all of that. It's fucking atrocious. But the two main matches are really good and they're also the reason why this show exists because you can take them out and you haven't got a show there's no show here you take them out not not just because of the quality but they wouldn't have even put the show on if those two matches weren't there Mm. so that's what this show is about they're excellent they don't get excellent backup which is why the show is not higher i think if you've got a more average looking rest of the card this could be a seven maybe even an eight for me because those two matches are really good. But yeah, without it, it's not it's not the best. But it's 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 historic. It is historic. It's weird for me because it's just a little bit before I got into wrestling. So it doesn't hold the same significance for me as it does a lot of fans in the UK, even though I've I'm well familiar with the show and owned it on VHS. I didn't own it on VHS until probably 1995, I should imagine. So I didn't see it till then. And I wasn't part of that initial UK wrestling boom that was, as we said at the top of the show, slightly after the American boom. So it doesn't hold quite the same emotional place for me as it does other people, which is probably the difference between your and my rating, Stephen. Yeah. 
So that is everything for today. You'll be very pleased to know. You're probably both calling for your beds, I'm sure. So, Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And Al, if anyone is in Cardiff in a few weeks' time, or a week's time, actually, because this is coming out on the 28th mm-hmm. of August, if you, I'll be wearing a Bret Hart t-shirt and I've got a table in Popwell. So if you come and call me Steve Coriander you'll get a drink of your choice. And Matt, obviously, that includes you. Ben, I think you might be on the way home by then, but I'm sure we'll try and meet up. We're gonna, I think we're in Elevens. Is it Gareth Bale's place? We've got a table in the afternoon, so it, which is quite near the stadium. So if anyone's around, let's have a drink. You know, I might even stick a, stick a phone in your face and get on, get on our live podcast. So if you want to hear more from me and the crew over at Pro Wrestling Moments, you can find us at Pro W Moments on Twitter. And thank you very much. It's been a great show, I think. And I've really enjoyed being on it. So, yeah, fantastic. Excellent. So what time are you at Pop World from? I think half, well, uh, half 10, I think. There probably is a bit after we're going to be there because uh, we're going to be going back to Bristol. No no hotels mm. for us, I'm afraid. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, Local boys, really. Well, yeah, pretty much. And also, like, two of us have got young young children. It can't be really done. Matt, thank you also for your contributions today. Pleasure as always. And very briefly, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention anything to do uh, with Clash of the Castle, especially being the uh, the, the Welshie on the show. So on, on behalf of the people of Wales, Chris we Camry, uh, which is welcome to Cardiff when you all get there. For those who uh, are following me on Twitter, you can see what my ugly mug looks like. Feel free to keep an eye. See if, you know, feel free to say hi. No idea where I'll be yet. I will have a Guinness in hand somewhere. Feel Like I said, feel free to say hi. Hopefully I'll end up possibly seeing some of you. Like I said, no idea what's going on. But there's loads of shows that weekend. You know, there's loads of Q&As. You know, there's, hey, Bret Hart is going to be in prison. You know, come on. So there's, <laughs> there's loads of stuff that can be done. But hell, everyone who's going, enjoy yourselves. Have fun. Hopefully see you there. So, Matt, you've let, your, you let, you let yourself down and you've let your country down there. First of all, you're drinking the Irish national drink for some reason. Ah. Secondly, Croisio e Cymru does not mean welcome to Cardiff. It means welcome to Wales. Yes, it um, does. <laughs> so, uh, apologies, but uh, you really let yourself down. But never mind. Uh, the other thing to say is by this time this podcast comes out, and certainly by the time that the Clash of the Castle happens, IWR will have a slightly different branding. Um, we've got a new little mm. logo coming out. And not only that, but... Tom has set us up with some t-shirts with the new branding on so we may well be wearing those on the day which will be a bit of a laugh anyway this has been the random wrestling review we'll be back again next week but until then take care